welcome to the Directors Club with Brad and Al. We are podcasting as one of the sites and podcasts off the Now Playing Network. Here in each episode of Directors Club, we take a look at the films of a single director, their legendary classics, breakout hits, personal labors of love, and hidden gems that could be found amongst their filmography. You can never tell what themes and connections can show up when you take a look at a director's entire body of work. Come join us on the film journey. Hello, everyone. I'm Al. And I'm Brad. And back in the depths of 2019, upon realizing that it would have been Ingmar Bergman's 101st birthday, we decided to embark on a fairly ambitious endeavor that we're calling the Bergman 101. Although we might have to call it the Bergman 102 now (laughs) that this is being (laughs) recorded in 2020. But the endeavor involves us taking a look at every single Ingmar Bergman film or TV program that made it onto a theater screen. We're very happy that joining us once again for part three is our co-organizer on the Chicago Film Discussion Meetup Group and a guest on several of the other Directors Club podcasts, John Ford, Terrence Malick, and Edgar Wright. Uh, Welcome back, Peter. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me back. We are glad to have you back, especially as we're concluding the Big Bergman Project. I I, I was going to bring a small little pamphlet and announce my arrival today, but (laughs) I forgot it at home, so sorry. (laughs) Right. I hope that going through 40-plus Bergman efforts has um, uh, not uh, caused you to make sure that all of the sharper implements of your house are... (laughs) are stored away. The shoelaces have been removed. I'm back in therapy, but er- <laughs> everything else is going well. So, <laughs> And yeah. if you're just joining us, uh, we have two other episodes of Ingmar Bergman prior to this one. So if, if you want to catch up uh, with Ingmar Bergman part one and part two, we, we have those on the Directors Club podcast.com. Right. Part one, it starts from his very first film, Crisis. And leads to his critical and popular hit, Smiles on a Summer Night, and goes through a whole number of fascinating genres, uh, including a noir film, a screwball comedy, and a dog movie. No kidding. Part two deals with some of the uh, Bergman films you may have been more familiar about, such as some personas make their appearance, some winter lights. But speaking of dog movies, we're going to start out part three with what I believe is a competitor to Gruffman as the best Bergman dog. So Ah, that is high praise. Let me say we'll see if you agree about the passion of Anna released in 1969. Andreas has chosen an isolated rural life after the end of his marriage, but is soon drawn into the lives of a married couple and the wife's sister, Anna. They face their longings, troubles, and regrets against a series of gruesome animal mutilations that strike the village. 
One thing I just want to note for this podcast and for the other two that we've done about Bergman, sometimes you get a director who it's who even if you feel that he's doing a misstep in his creative choices, which slight spoiler might happen in this movie, <laughs> um, it his directorial intent is still incredibly obvious that what you're looking at is exactly the image, exactly the feeling that that Ingmar Bergman wants to evoke. And this is uh, the case of nearly all of his films, including this one, which really fascinates me in a sense that it is taking, I feel, some of the ideas of isolation, loneliness, uh, self-doubt, and basically the idea of uh, people with a void in their lives and giving it like, Almost the Seinfeld ensemble-like sense that each person in the, of the four characters in the story that we look at the most have something lacking. Yeah, this is a film that frustrated me, I'll be honest. Like, it seems to have a pretty good reputation reputation among Bergman fans. Um, but I really felt like it was an exercise and an, that failed to bear fruit. Because he is trying new things to convey his pet themes but a lot of the things here really seem to undercut the movie more than enhance it to me. Uh, specifically, the biggest one is uh, inexplicably the film cuts to the actors discussing their characters in the middle of the film. So it's almost like a DVD extra inserted into the film's running time. Mm-hmm. That was the most noticeable one. I mean, it sort of felt like a return to persona-esque, this is a film type thing, but far less effective. Well, there seemed to be no real point to them. It's not like any of those interruptions were terribly enlightening. They were basically each actor talking about an aspect of their character. And they do, each of the four actors do it exactly once. So if you're going to run with that, you, you kind of have to build that into a thing your movie is doing. If you just seemingly ramshackle insert them, it's a little awkward. But I think this period in Bergman is a little awkward. We've talked about a trilogy he did uh, back in part two of uh, movies about uh, faith and God. This is kind of the conclusion of a trilogy we started in part two, The Hour of the Wolf, Shame, and now The Passion of Anna, which are all kind of about isolation, uh, loneliness in the face of chaos going on in the outside world. And to put it more simply, how do you drive Max von Sydow crazy? Because all (laughs) films pretty much are working on that. But I do think that post-Persona, this is a little bit of a, a period of Bergman searching for a way to continue to be a storyteller, which he will find. But this seems, along with those other two movies, to just not quite make it to prime Burton. See, I'm looking at it as that he's using all of his formidable talents to give a exploration on these feelings that he has. And when you have these sensations of isolation and and loneliness and looking for meaning and then also the ambiguity of how you can like try to have things in your life be better than your memories or your past longings and regrets like one of the things i 
was thinking about when, when watching the main relationship between Van Saito and Liv Allman is how Bergman drops in these details. There's a particular quote about history. Someone, someone once said, and I, I wish I remember who, he said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Hmm. And I like what Berg, how Bergman explores, like, that a, a, a particular traumatic moment has certain incidents that get reflected from another character and vice versa. And so much like how in Vertigo, how the tragedy comes from a person who has such an obsessive longing to write, to write the past that he ends up causing the same mistakes that led to this uh, uh, tragic end in the first place. I feel Bergman is exploring the, re- the couple relationship part of it about how their own um, neuroses help cause the same things that caused the trauma that happened in their past that's in the first place. I, I don't disagree that those themes and subjects are there. I guess my problem with the film is just how he goes about digging into them. And there are experiments here, uh, but they just don't w- work to enhance those themes for me. Like another odd touch is that the film elides a lot of the events and then has expository dialogue, which tells you what happened. Mm-hmm. And for the life of me, I don't know why it's more interesting to tell rather than show those things. And you're, you're right, Brad, it is very much Von Sydow centric because it has a bunch of characters bounce off him in a way that feels too random. We kind of expect that we're going to focus on uh, Liv Ullman's uh, Anna character, but the original title in Swedish, I guess, was just Passion. And so we don't focus any more on Liv Ullman than anyone else, and it ends up being mostly Von Sydow, who is always just gives a wonderful performance. There's a lot of stuff that seems missing like the the initial relationship is an adulterous one with uh bb anderson mm-hmm. and that is all very unceremoniously just ends without a, a real scene of it ending it, it, it basically and, is one scene right and then all of a sudden he's with uh her sister and if anybody is terribly upset about this situation, the film doesn't really go into it. But but yeah, Al, you're you're certainly right that that the most of the value here, I think, is the meditation on how the past can haunt the present, which is I think a theme that is going to repeat in a lot of uh, the Bergman films we'll be discussing. I just didn't consider it very powerful here you mentioned before about intent and i think it's easy to get spoiled with bergman because no matter what else is going on he's an amazing visualist uh, with his uh, cinematographer uh, sven nyquist here for the first time he's utilizing color now he did have a color film previously in in all these women but that was a little bit more of a uh, strange uh, excursion yes. that that used color in a weird way. So I almost consider this to be his first truly color film. And he makes things as vivid as he ever has. And to lead to one of the more disturbing elements of the film, there is this subplot of the animal murders, which I'm not sure really adds much to the film. It adds, there is a sense of mystery because we never do find out who's killing uh, the animals. Although we do, 
find out who was suspected of killing the animals, and then when when he is abused by the uh, island locals, uh, that creates kind of a dramatic subplot, but it doesn't, for me, connect much to the uh, story as a whole. It it felt like a miserablest pile-on to me. Mm -hmm. Like, a lot of these things just aren't explored enough. And you're right, it's basically amounts to a succession of things hitting Von Sydow's character that are either his own relationships, the world and closing in on his isolation. And and it's interesting because at at the end of the film, Bergman again undercuts the emotion of it by having this tremendous scene of of Von Sydow's character wandering around in the rain. And then it just ends and says, this time he was called Andreas Finkelman. Like it's almost like undercutting it saying, this is a film. This is what I do. This time I gave the character this name. Mm -hmm. And it's an interesting hodgepodge that never really came together for me. Mm-hmm. This it's a, I feel like that this is a more scattershot thing of what I feel Darren Aronofsky did much more consistently and potently when he made Mother! Exclamation point. Part of it is like he's examining these things that are roiling within him. And as we've found out through his other two episodes, through the other two episodes and all the films we've explored of Bergman's, he is a very personal filmmaker. And for me personally, I respond to how he, I feel him exploring. And he, he knows he has within him. And when he does those things, I kind of agree with you guys that I don't feel it adds that much in terms of the movie, in terms of its momentum or making it more richer. But as a feeling that I have that I'm watching a director explore things through his own psychology. I respond to the intent, I guess. And I would grant you guys that it elides too much. To do the Vertigo analogy again, it's like as if you had Scotty from Vertigo and he suddenly shows up with a woman. It's like, oh, that woman looks a lot like the person he was chasing in the <laughs> beginning. Like, no, no, no. You need to, if you're going to have obsession, you need to build on it. You can't just skip that. But Bergman tries something quite different for him. In the next film we're going to talk about, Pharaoh Document, released in documentary focuses on the island of Pharaoh, which has been Bergman's home for close to a decade at this point. He observes and interviews a variety of the island's small population, from farmers to the mayor to school kids on a bus, and gives us an inside look at the sheep herding trade. There's a wonderful documentary about Ingmar Bergman called Bergman's Island that has a pretty extensive interview, and in the course of it, uh, in addition to talking about his films, he also does talk about his love and affection for this island he lives on. It's so sincere, and this movie is a result of that, but it's kind of one of those things that's so personal, I don't know that it translates to something 
that has the kind of meaning it would if you actually lived there and liked it, which a lot we find out a lot of people who do live there uh, didn't like it. It's not a gorgeous island. You think of an island and you and and you think of a certain idyllic paradise. And in a lot of previous movies, particularly through a glass darkly, you see this island really showing its best beauty. And because he's being real here, we're we're not seeing that. We're seeing kind of the unvarnished truth of the island, which is that it's a place with a, a lot of older people who are very set in their ways and don't appear particularly happy in as they're depicted in this film. Then most interestingly, when they uh, move to uh, the young people and the school kids, they all of a sudden uh, switch to color and there's happy pop music to uh, contrast with what seems to be a lot of uh, unhappiness uh, in, in the older characters. It's a smash cut I believe straight from a funeral <laughs> to a, to the to the uh, super energetic bouncing uh, music at, a, at inside the school bus. Yeah, I, I think when we talked about this off mic, Brad, you referred to this as Ingmar Bergman interviews his neighbors, which it be, <laughs> which it basically is. But to me, I think I liked it a little bit more than you guys. I, I this exposed uh, lives to me that I really didn't have any insight to. Um, it has some playful elements that you mentioned al like the cut to the in the pop song it's under an hour it doesn't overstay its welcome it's more of an interesting curio than anything else i would say um just a quick mention for people who may be triggered by uh what animal death there is quite a bit of sheep uh there is an extended scene in vivid close-up uh, Bergman's known for his close-ups, but not like this, as every part of the sheep gets used to put a more pleasant spin on things. And, and to be fair, this is sort of the lightning crashes of sheep, because you get the birth and you get the you have many sheep birthing scenes as well. well. The birthing yes. scene is very strange, because no. I was not surprised to see uh, one sheep give birth, or, or two. But th it becomes this montage of sheep after sheep after sheep, uh, <laughs> graphically, by the way, giving birth in the course of five minutes straight. And mm. at some point, it's kind of like, okay, we get it. There's a sheep who's clearly having a difficult birthing, almost like writhing in agony and trying to complete the process, if you will. And it really is endearing. Um, but if that sort of thing interests you, then... Like, they could have just had then that birth be the scene of the sheep birthing. Fair enough. Absolutely. I think this film may be the most valuable if you um, need to finish your zoology degree and you want to know what internal organs and what the natural processes of, of the common sheep of the Scandinavian region are. This movie will provide that for you. What I feel the movie doesn't provide is much else. One of the worst experiences in my film-going life happened in Toronto when I saw a uh, particular late-period Errol Morris movie. I'm a huge fan of Errol Morris, and so when I saw this film, I was appalled because this person who had put up so much creativity and innovation in, in documentary filmmaking effectively just put a camera on a table and interviewed his um, bridge partner, perhaps, or friend, and just had her describe things 
in as nondescript manner as possible. And I remember sitting in the theater going, it took me more effort to watch your goddamn movie than it did for you to make it. <laughs> and Bergman does, to his credit, put more effort because his intent is still there. In the panoply of, of sheep moving around, in like interviewing one of his neighbors uh, as she talks about her hard life, and he clearly framed it with a big wagon wheel behind her, and then have the horses occasionally pay her a visit to let, to nuzzle her and so on. So he's clearly trying to say, th- get these scattered moments. But those people and their situation could not interest me less because by the fourth version of the old farmer who's been farming for 30 years and, and no, nothing's really changed and he's com- still complaining about building a bridge, I had felt I got to the point of like, look, man... That's a small town. These are clearly the people who are left behind. They're doing stuff that no one would want to do because if the people wanted to do things, they left. And when Bergman gets to the kids, who almost to a person say, oh, I got to get out of here. There's nothing to do. I am so with them at, at that point. And, and even at its abbreviated length, which <laughs> it gets a little wearing for me. But any subject is appropriate for this kind of documentary study, but... I think Bergman drops the ball in not asking these people interesting questions. We talked about Bergman interviews his neighbors, and I think that it feels like that's why. He asks them questions that that he as their neighbor would be interested in hearing about, rather than as we as somebody, as an audience who wants to understand what life is like on this island would be interested in. See, I guess I feel a little bit, and this may be, I'm originally from a very small town, so maybe this like registers more with me. But I felt like those questions did establish sort of the rhythm of life for this place, this location. It was an area that I didn't know anything about. I didn't know any of these people. Many of them are nearing the end of their lives. And it was interesting for me to get a sense of, this time and method of living that is very much uh, nearing its end. And that was valuable. So there could not be more of a contrast between the uh, small island off the coast of Sweden and Bergman's first encounter working with Hollywood star in his next movie, The Touch, released in 1971. After seeing her recently deceased mother, Karen meets an American archaeologist named David, also an acquaintance of her husband, Andreas. David soon begins an affair with Karen that proves both addictive and emotionally unstable, thanks to the demons haunting David from his previous life. 
addictive and emotionally unstable. Those are the first two things that come to mind when I think of Elliot Gould. <laughs> what an what an interesting choice. At at this moment, Gould was one of the biggest stars in Hollywood at the time, and he had come off of Mash and Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. He was a full fledged movie star, and he is one of the unfortunate things that knocked the touch down a peg because as big as a movie star as he is Elliot Gould gives off a certain kind of vibe and dramatic soul-searching intensity is not that vibe so when he's asked to behave in in an emotionally vulnerable or a raging manner it comes across nothing so much as someone has spiked his drink more than uh, more than anything organically happening in the story. And you mentioned the story. And I think despite the role he was on in the 70s in general, Elliot Gould is not good here. But this is not a particularly strong script. No. And I think sometimes what happens with Bergman is exemplified here in that he puts so much of his own strong feelings and neurosis and issues into a character that no one else around that character properly reacts to them because Bergman as a writer is not able to understand how those feelings, or the, the reactions those uh, feelings would generate in other people. David, the character Gould character here, is so bizarrely ping-ponging around emotionally and people don't seem to acknowledge that. I mean, very early in the film, he gets drunk at the central couple's home and asks to see nude pictures of the wife. I mean, now I understand this is Europe in the seventies, but the vibe of it is very much someone who is uncomfortably bridging a a subject rather than taking part in an open era. And the Von Saito character, the husband doesn't react to him in a, in a strong way at all, but just sort of, acknowledges it as normal and when it's not normal and that pattern repeats itself throughout this film and that's the thing about it it's like a film of false starts that never go anywhere and character arcs that are just cut off the elliot gould problem is a problem i i like elliot gould in the kind of role he is known for which is uh kind of a laid-back, neurotic, slightly uh, comic character. He's got to go way in another direction here. He's got to be almost uh, Travis Bickle-like in the (laughs) depths of the haunted man underneath the facade that uh, is, is trying to give the impression of a normal life. And just Elliot Gould's not the actor for this kind of thing. Ironically enough, Max von Sydow would have been the actor for this kind of thing, but he was otherwise occupied in the other role. But I think a good example of both these points is as the relationship with B.B. Anderson consummates. And at first, he's unable to perform, and they're unable to really get their affair going. And at some point, yeah. And do in no small, I just have to jump in to say, mm-hmm. do in no small part to B.B. Anderson doing the most, literally she could have had a bucket of ice that she drops on his crotch <laughs> and, and it would not be as effective as spending her time in 
her adulterous bed, literally saying, does my butt look big? Oh, boy, this having a fair... Oh, it's so weird, isn't it? Oh, I'm so confused. She, but yeah, and just, she talks herself out of her yeah. own... Of, uh, she her gives own... a really long speech in prelude to this attempted lovemaking, <laughs> yeah. which uh, ends badly. But then the next attempt is what's really strange, because all of a sudden he wants to abuse her. All of a sudden he wants to, to hit her and to do a, uh, a rape fantasy of some kind. And so now there's this seriously dark element coming into this uh, character. BB, by the way, is willing to go along with just about anything Elliot Gould's character is up to, which uh, is also problematic, but more problematic is just that such a, a bombshell of a, of, of a character aspect is brought up and then never brought up again. I guess I'll push back a little bit on this because I found the scene, the initial rendezvous to be one of the better scenes in the film. And principally because I thought Bibi's character here, she's sort of an innocent in a way. She's never done something like this before. She's now someone who's in her mid thirties. And the scene, uh, I actually like the scene you're talking about, Al, because it, it's an aging actress who is well nude going through cataloging her body and the flaws she now sees in herself. And she, it's clear that she's looking for something redemptive in this affair, like trying to feel good about where she is in life and, and, and find a passion she, that her very comfortable life lacks. Um, the problem is, is that she repeatedly seeks us out through the Gould character who in no way reciprocates that feeling. And she doesn't react to his aggression towards her because it's almost like she is so intent on finding this redemption that she doesn't acknowledge the reality in front of her, that this guy is just a mess and that she ultimately will end up caring for him almost as like a caregiver would their connection doesn't feel authentic at all and that's a big problem for a movie that is about an affair yeah there's no chemistry between these actors and if we're gonna buy that she will literally take and accept any kind of behavior because she is so in love and can't live without this man then the two actors need to project chemistry which isn't happening Right. This film, in that aspect, is a definition of uh, a term I think Roger Ebert put in his movie glossary called the informed attribute, whereby uh, you think a character is talented because you have scene after scene of people saying, wow, that guy's really talented. Don't you think how, don't you see how talented he is? I don't see any of this quote-unquote regret that you're seeing from B.B. Anderson because, because she doesn't really have anything that does or happens to her that she would have a regret. There is not a case where she's at odds with Max von Sydow's character. And so her development towards trying to have an affair with Elliot Gould is more a matter of trying to have a fling that I, I think to your point, Brad, is, is expressed in these kind of romantic terms. Like it's a very, something that I found a little odd, but I guess if you look at it as a flirt, as some sort of, wistful return to innocence you literally have the romantic comedy clothing montage as she's and and done to this very bizarrely chipper dance track as she's as she's vacuuming up the house and then trying different pieces of clothing and then and then seeing oh does my color look right or does my hair look and i remember when i'm my reaction on it is lady 
He said he wanted to see you nude the second time you saw him. <laughs> He's going for it. <laughs> you don't have to pretty yourself up for this guy, like, at all. He's going for it. <laughs> but but that, to me, is like, that was sort of the innocence I was talking about. I, I thought the theme song was kind of a playful touch. It sounds like a 70s game show jingle, basically. Credit to Bergman for putting a, a light moment in this otherwise very grim film. But that montage is like her going back to like seeking some sort of like teenage feeling or passion, if you will. That There's nothing wrong with her life. It's just something that seems comfortable to her and she's seeking for more but again as i said she has the wrong guy in mind if that's what she's after and i'm totally seeing what you guys are coming from in the sense of like it's more of an an, an innocence thing a sense of like perhaps a woman trying to like explore more options that she feels that her married life for however it's comfort rekindle something inside her this film would have looked a lot better if she had that initial fling with gould and then realized not this guy, and then the film followed her into a different phase of her life from there. Mm-hmm. That makes sense to me, but that's not what happens. Right. There's like, I think one of us described it as an arc, and it's not so much of an arc as like each particular scene has a different kind of note, but it's the notes of a piano that's being thrown down the stairs for me. <laughs> because the first moment that they encounter is one of the worst examples of a meet cute in history as literally she is still crying over the death of her mother. He stumbles in, in, in a stairwell, sees her crying, goes, Oh, sorry. And then leaves. And the next scene we're expected to think that she's, Oh, well, no, well, now, now this is the person who caught me at my, my lowest point. Oh, yeah, I, let's have a, let's have a flirtatious affair with him. And then then you get another scene where he's angry and wants to engage in this uh, violent fantasy with her, and uh, and she's going along for the ride. But that's at odds with the flirtatious side too. Well, yeah. the, and that goes to Bergman's the problem with Bergman's scripts because the script here because I think he just piles things on the Gould character because he doesn't really know who this person is. It touches on the, the losses his family have suffered in the Holocaust. The film ends with him having an apparently incestuous relationship with his sister who has a genetic disorder. And, and it's, it's just ridiculous. It's a genetic disorder that that the sister makes pains to point out that she shares with Gould's character. So apparently he has a, a potentially terminal disease on top of things. I don't know if the script was modified while it was filming, but it there. yeah, I see what you're saying, Peter. There's definitely a feeling that, well, maybe the drama might not be working in the halfway point. So I know Bourbon might say, let's add more drama. Let's let's throw in the Holocaust. Let's throw in diseases. Let's throw in this very strange relationship with the sister. And I wonder if Bergman is put some stuff like this in because they wanted to show Gould very much as an outsider to the r- world that he knows because you are casting the most prominent Jewish actor of his generation and then making him American in a uh, world of Swedish, uh, let's call it waspiness, Mm. beyond that. And we're showing that in the relationship with uh, Bibi and Max von Sydow and how it's kind of polite but a little cold and they don't really express their feelings. And then there's the idea that maybe this affair is is exotic to her Mm. in some way. But again, we, we, we kind of go back to the initial problem of the film 
is nobody sent Elliot Gould that memo. <laughs> That's that, that that was how his character was going to play into this already existing dynamic. Right, or they sent him the memo, but unfortunately the memo wasn't Swedish. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I will say two things that I, I put on the plus side for this film that I really like is, as I said earlier in this podcast, Bergman's intentions, he may have had some sort of contradictory movements in this film and was a little didn't have a solid ground in, in terms of what the story is, but his way of expressing things with his camera is as power, I found as powerful as ever, especially in what the um, feelings in Passion of Anna were expressed through the landscape and what happens to the creatures within them. This does in the places that people go. because B.B. Um, Anderson's home life is rendered in this very bright white sparse thing that enhances its the sterile kind of nature just something that she would want to just ex have an affair just to try something different than to add literally add more color it's very very beige and and to your point peter like the music is also pretty jaunty when it shows her serving breakfast to her family and it almost becomes like a, a real life documentary as it spins to each kid who's smiling like hey ma how's you doing and to it, it's a pretty cool bit of humor i think in in, Ber in bergman's case but when you see gould as he's living in this area where she's trying to do some research his apartment is dark cluttered and dilapidated and becomes more dilapidated no, look i'm gonna admit up front i'm not the biggest elliot gould fan but i do think that the scenery did outact him <laughs> in terms of expressing uh, his his darker feelings more than more than he was able to yeah i, I guess just before we move on from this, I, I the one thing i would say is that i thought bb was great in this movie i know we differ on that but i really liked her i, I thought that there the movie asks a lot of her about roughly half her dialogue is in English. And I thought she really, this might have been my favorite performance of hers mm. in all the Bergman films. Wow. I, I thought she was really good, maybe doing something that Lee Ullman is asked to do more often, but she did it very well. I would say that in both uh, Bergman's English language films, uh, his lead actresses suffer from the Penelope Cruz syndrome, oh, whereas yeah. Penelope Cruz is a magnificent, wonderful actress when she's acting in Spanish, and significantly less so when she's acting in English. Mm -hmm. And this particular story just gives B.B. Anderson a lot to swerve around, and uh, it's a tough thing for any actors, actress to successfully navigate, which I don't quite feel she did here. But we're having some explorations by actresses of a very different kind in the next movie we're going to be talking about, Cries and Whispers, released in Agnes lies in her deathbed in the agony of her last days. Her sisters, Karen and Maria, watch over her, while her only comfort is the care of her loving nurse, Anna. In the face of death, both sisters are also forced to relive their own painful memories. 
now things start to get interesting again. <laughs> I don't think Bergman has been doing great work really since the Persona era. And this is, for me, very much a comeback to Bergman at the top of his form. He is using the interior space of uh, the house that these sisters live in to represent their psyches. And he does that by constantly infusing the screen with red, so much to the point where every time the film fades, it doesn't fade to black, it fades to red. We're dealing with Bergman actresses at some of their highest levels, particularly Harriet Anderson, who had been known for a particular type of character that was often very much based around her sexuality, here playing a dying woman so raw, so painful, that this is really one of the hardest-to-watch films I've ever seen. The process of her dying is visceral, and Anderson conveys that with everything she does. Even though it's hard to watch, this film is so dramatically and symbolically rich it makes it makes it worth it i think the fact that harriet anderson is cast in the in the role of someone who is suffering from a great physical malady it really makes that loss at home more because as you said brad her the emphasis has been on her sexuality and her body previously mm -hmm. and now we have a body that has betrayed her and that is failing her and that she's dying painfully this film is very much a hull of spiritual agony as well as physical agony. And it, it, it's about the distance between uh, the dying sister and her health to healthy sisters and the distance between those sisters and their husbands. And it's really about isolation physically as well as emotionally from the people who are in the same room as you. And it's really Bergman's howling of pain. But yet the film doesn't just do that it would be too miserableist if it did it does acknowledge the fleeting moments of connection that these people have and that acknowledgement of both pain and unity to me makes this one of my favorite bergman films hmm. and it's one of my favorites as well i i take a, a micro issue brad with what you were saying about he gets interesting because i feel he has remained interesting even if his efforts are not 100% successful. But in Cries and Whispers, I think his efforts are close to 100% successful. Like on an atom level, on a color level, on a framing level, on an interior level, and on a psychological level. Everything so fits in this. What I think the film does is it looks at the that what Bergman was exploring about the different parts of people's personalities and how one person can have these different aspects to themselves. And whereas Persona was more of an exploration and an examination of this, and The Silence was a sort of bleak distancing look at those two parts of the personality, here in what I think is the psychological version of what happens to the poor sheep in the beginning of Pharaoh Document. This is, a, I feel, an absolute extraction, a visceral extraction of a, a person's personality into three different parts. 
And specifically, to your point about Harriet Anderson's, it's her. It's what happens to the other part of a person's life when one part dies or one part goes away. Harriet Anderson is tremendous at this film. She is so effective and has to go so much in terms of expressing uh, uh, agony that <laughs> it makes me think that that affair that, that Bergman had of her really kind of broke off badly because she had returned her last film with Bergman was through a glass darkly where she also played a suffering character. And then so you get Bergman gives her a call like, Hey, Harriet, have I got the movie for you? <laughs> well, she, she is also in all these women, but everyone right. suffers there. So. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Yes, including <laughs> the people who have to watch it. <laughs> um, but apart from that, she's also the most vibrant in terms of creativity. And you guys remember when we were watching The Silence, how Ingrid Thulin's character in that is more of the translator. I feel Harriet Anderson's character is that feeling. And the other two legs on this particular psychological support mechanism is how Ullman, ironically, she, I feel, is the B.B. Anderson part of the personality in the sense that she's the more socials part. She's the part of like, let's have everyone get along, make sure through touching or, or kind words or so on, or through reaching out for this affair or trying to go and get a connection to my sister because my other sister is gone and I'm going to overreact that way. It touches back on the relationship demonstrated in the silence, the emotional and the intellectual. But what, it works better here because in that film, it was really cast as part of a bigger social statement. Mm -hmm. Here, it's entirely emotional. Yeah. It, it's what's what threatens you, those two people, is death, basically. Yeah. Death is in the next room. Mm -hmm. And that works so much better here when you're contrasting an individual physical death and individual physical pain than you are the Vietnam War, yes. basically. Yeah, this is one of a few, I guess I'd call them chamber pieces, that Bergman does in the 70s, where he really limits his number of characters. And when he does that, it's almost always to incredibly strong effect. What Harriet Anderson's doing here is so powerful that after the first time I saw the film, and it was a bit of a, a while before I saw it the second time, I kind of had it in my mind that this film was all about that character's death. In fact, she dies halfway through the film, and the other half is really dealing with the fallout as far as the relationship with uh, these two sisters. You were mentioning Liv Ullman being the more uh, innocent and boisterous here, but Ingrid Thulin is also incredibly haunting here as basically the sister who, even though she's healthy physically, has this gigantic void in her life, this inability to feel love or pleasure or connect with her fellow human beings that's graphically depicted when she, she cuts herself in a very disturbing way. That, too, is just part of the cries of, of cries and whispers. Her character, right, is the part of ourselves which, in order for to work with society, she has to be the mask, the, the version of propriety, of knowing what's the right thing to do and always and assuming responsibility. Sometimes when you need to do that, you can't let your emo emotions go 
you have to hold those in check. You have to hold your creativity in check to hold a family unit together. And I feel it's working in this way, both as a family unit and actually as a psychological unit. The reason she cuts herself, it's, it's to quote Trent Reznor, to see if she could feel. Right. And why can't she feel? Because I think it's because Harry Anderson is the feeling part of herself, or it's the thing that this relationship brought in the feeling and the creativity, and that's dying, and that's going away. Obviously, in a director's career full of brilliant imagery, like one of the most brilliant images I've ever seen from Bergman is when the, each sister reflects on them uh, on what's uh, uh, what's happening. It shows a close up of their face with the eyes closed, and one side of the face is obscured in shadow, and then it goes and fades to red because on the one hand it shows how there's a part of themselves that is missing, and also. When their eyes are closed, it gives the fade to red an even more potent touch. Like when you're like have a headache or you're traumatized, if you close your eyes really shut, you can see red, right? I feel it's bringing that sensation on too. As I was thinking about this film for the podcast, this this one word kept coming back to me, and it was just elemental. This film is so so after the basic building blocks of just being alive, and it was mentioned earlier the longing for touch. And it, it, it really is touch in just a connection way, not necessarily sexual. Right. It, it, it is much more just wanting to connect with people, wanting to feel someone next to you, so someone who can be a comfort. And what's amazing about this film is it realizes, it, it, it acknowledges that that is very rare in life, mm -hmm. but it is possible. The balance here is probably 80% pain, 20% or even more. Right. But what's new for Bergman here is I think that it acknowledges, despite the litany of horrors that th these people observe and or is that there is a possible connection, but it's fleeting and you have to really hold on to it the best you can while you can. And that's really embodied in the character of uh, Anna, who is uh, Herod Anderson's nurse. And clearly, as we see, much more than a nurse. They are very close, perhaps even sexually close, but what we really see is the affection. She doesn't just have the affection, but she's able to show the affection to Agnes that her sisters cannot. So here's this character outside the family who the sisters and then their husbands basically are looking to dismiss as quickly as possible after Agnes's death, but she might be the most important person in her life. And the fact is, the fact that the movie ends on a note of Anna remembering Agnes th through a, a note that she reads is really poignant in what it has to say about who are the real valuable connections we make in our lives. That, great point, man. Like she is, it's so interesting that she is outside that family unit. There's certain scenes where if you look at them out of context, you're like, oh, well, maybe you don't need to take your top off by being a um, uh, maid, okay? That's, I don't know if, what part of the duties are. But in duties of the story, it makes perfect sense because I feel she is the sense of natural expression mm -hmm. and natural connection that these sisters have found so separate and like so f uh, fragmented among themselves. And that's expressed visually uh, and audibly as well in just the design of the film. When you're talking about naturalism, the scenes outside the house are just as gorgeous as anything Berkman's 
ever filmed. It's very still. There's barely a trace of music in this film. Instead, you hear clocks ticking. You hear the tiny noises that occur in a house. And we focus our camera on the minutiae of things in the house, almost invariably in, in, in red, as we were, were discussing, and then contrasting that with this kind of autumny orange of the outside. It's just as lyrical as films get. We mentioned how big a, a role the color red plays here, but notably at the end of the film, I think everyone is uh, in white. It's a remembrance of a time when they were all together and connected. And that's almost like this purity in a way. And it really is a beautiful contrast to the red used elsewhere. Yes. And one thing that just came up that just popped in when we were, because it not only shows them together in very close proximity, but it also hits me that it's super, super cool how they're on the swing and the swings going back and forth like the many pendulums of the clocks that we saw earlier to open up this movie. Like you said, Brad, on the elemental level, as well as the, I feel, the intellectual and psychological one, this is a complete triumph from Bergman. Speaking of triumph, Scenes from a Marriage, released as a Swedish miniseries in 1973 and theatrically in 1974. Marianne and Johan both believe they have an ideal marriage and family life. The film looks past this facade over the course of years, as they separate and reunite at different places in their lives, yet always drawn back to each other. So this is the first in a period on Ber of Bergman's where we're in a strange situation, where we, have, we get a chance to view this in two totally different ways. One of which is as a movie, but another, and as it starts as a TV series. And I kind of think your impressions are going to be a little different, whether you see it first as a TV series or as a movie. For sure. And I guess I'm going to be a little evangelical about this because I have a strong preference. Okay. Which is not to say that I don't think uh, the film versions of this and later on, we're going to talk about Fanny and Alexander, which has the same uh, TV miniseries versus film situation. Both those films are magnificent, but I do think that devoting the time to these six-hour miniseries, which are divided into episodes, so you don't have to watch six hours at once. But if you do these versions, I feel like you're going to get a much richer experience 
and get a film that's much closer to what the director intended, which is very particular to its format. And I would agree with you, Brad. Uh, the one caveat I would add to that, in our modern-day binging culture, do not binge those episodes. Give yourself time to breathe in between them, because there's a lot of emotional upheaval in this series, and you do not want to pile all that on yourself in one sitting. If, if you would have watched this back when it aired, it would have been the next day or a, f a few more days, and, uh, and that's incorporated into how the story is told. So this is a movie of dramatic personality and emotional shifts, but they happen over the course of years. One episode ends and the next episode begins and it's seven years later and it makes sense that these characters are not acting the same way they did in the last episode. It makes a little less sense if you're watching the movie version and all of a sudden you get these personality shifts without the break and without kind of the inherent understanding that you sense the time has passed. I think I agree with you guys because there are certain negative impressions that I got out of this, and I think a lot of it comes from the fact that I did watch this as a binge. <laughs> I saw the whole thing at once, the whole TV series at once. Interesting. I, when I said that, I didn't know you had done that, so I'm kind of <laughs> interested to hear your take on yeah. it. Before I was concerned, Brad, with how you were saying about how these whiplash changes, you would need a, a day or so to just adjust for the fact that they're in a new point in their lives. But I was a little taken aback while I'm watching for, for two particular things. Uh, one of which is that you are seeing a couple, and this is one of the big tributes of the incredibly high qualities of this, is you get to see a couple in all of its encompassing highs and lows. They have these moments of hatred and disdain of different parts of, of the other person, but clearly affection and love for that person as well. And what I was experiencing was that when I would see episode one, I would see these expressions and you'd get the range. Like there would be moments where they have arguments, but then there's moments where they're uh, very, very affectionate. Then episode two, they would start at a certain point, but then they would jump really, really high, and then they would go really, really low. <laughs> and then by the time the sixth episode rolls around, I kind of felt a little bit claustrophobic, as if, oh god, these guys are quite like bipolar maniacs <laughs> that are like circling each other like the gravity of like two nuclear atoms. <laughs> that is exactly, I think, the experience that viewing it as a miniseries should abate. Ah, so, exactly. But I, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and a real quick minor thing that happened with me when you see it all at once is there's particular details that harken, to me, harken back to like the, in the early days of TV before they were taping things. Like most notably for me, like on the Flintstones animated series, like Fred's buddy Barney had a different job every single time in the early episodes. And the reason for it was because no one cared. Because mm -hmm. I didn't have the idea that this stuff would be taped or that people would watch it later. You're not saying the Flintstones anticipated the gig economy? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, not the animal-based one, for sure. <laughs> but, uh, but I just mean this in the sense that there's particular details that happen in Episode 1 and Episode 2 that the scope of these characters and their emotional journey is so vast that they would fall by the wayside. Notably, there's a, a moment in one of the weaker scenes for me was when, when Liv Ullman's character is 
was telling Erlen Josephson how, oh, you used to dote on these kids and uh, now, uh, like, where did all that affection go? There was no affection for these kids. In fact, but uh, in fact, it is to the, the series' great credit that it focuses on these. And to the extent that they use these kids, they are using them as something to bolster their own emotional side of their arguments. The kids appear, I believe, just once at the very beginning of the film when a uh, television documentary is going to film their ideal family life. I think because uh, Liv Ullman's character is a divorce lawyer. And so we see in just this one moment the family as a whole. After that, the kids are gone. We do get a scene in the first episode with uh, another couple, played by B.B. Anderson and Jan Malmsio, who are a incredibly dysfunctional, I'd call it bickering, but it goes beyond bickering. These two just hate each other, and they're like, we're going to take our fight right into our friend's living room and go no holds barred. They're also drunk, but... What's cool about this is that we're seeing, for the only time in, in the series, kind of this other, how this other couple would operate, and Marianne and Johan's view that, oh, well, that could never happen to us. Mm -hmm. I, I want to quickly jump in to say that the kids don't appear at all in the theatrical, aren't referenced at all in the theatrical version, um, or they're not shown at all, and it's not, it's not even a focus. And this is a case where in the, in the theater, it actually does, does kind of streamline it. But with regards towards the, the bickering couple as a contrast, okay, first off, Malmsio is so effective at being this like rubbery-lipped, disgusting, manipulative, unpleasant individual that I was a bit aghast by my reaction. I'm like, when I found out what other role he's going to play in the future, <laughs> who we're going to talk about, I was like, oh, yeah. He's really good at that. <laughs> but also what's really, really good about that contrast is it's so sharp a contrast to this couple who up until I saw had, had seen before midnight, the Richard Linklater scene, which to, at that point I think had the greatest argument in a relationship I'd ever seen depicted on film. Until I saw this series slash movie which is the ultimate example of people trying to discuss the importance of the relationship in their lives in the most articulate, thoughtful, and considerate way I've ever seen. Um, the scene you're talking about occurs very early, and it's in the opening episode of the series. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was actually the weakest point of this entire series because it felt so much like Bergman making a thesis statement at the outset of his project. And it was just too much. Mm -hmm. It was just like, here's what we're going to work through. This is what it can be. Our main couple doesn't think this is going to happen to them, but we're going to spend five or so hours showing that it does. Mm -hmm. And there's uh, the, the reaction I had was that I'm like, okay, like I, I didn't need to be told that. There is a later argument scene between Erwin Josephson and Lee Vollman, I believe in episode three, where he announces he's leaving her. Now that, to me, I would rank that scene where you rank the first scene, and that is really an accomplishment. Oh, oh don't give me... I'm, I'm sorry, I, I misspoke a bit. I'm not saying that that first scene was this... I'm saying the entire scope of the series oh, as a whole, like because they're constantly trying to talk through this situation into good and bad ends. The arguing couple is, to compare to another link later, the before 
Sunrise, in the very beginning of that movie, Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy see a couple bickering on the train, and I feel that that dinner party is what Bergman's saying. It's like, see all this bickering, see all this hatred and acrimony that these people are doing? Well, we're not going to do that. We're going to try to be a lot more emphatic towards both sides. I do like the first episode because it shows the facade. It gives us the view that they want us to see. Mm. And we spend the entire rest of the miniseries tearing that down. But it's much more effective to me to see how important it is to them that they're viewed in this particular way. And so I I just want to leave that into a, a discussion of the performances because the film is 90% two actors, Liv Ullman and Erlen Josephson. Erlen Josephson gives a great performance. He is as oily, conflicted, and untrustworthy as we would want this character to be, yet not two-dimensional. He is all these things in a very human way. What Liv Ullman does is deliver what I think is one of the greatest performances I've ever seen in any film. Her openness, as far as an actress, letting us see into the interior of a character's soul is almost unprecedented. And that might be because of the amount of time we get to spend with her. But my God, what she is doing acting-wise... It's magic. I I had to rewind a couple scenes and just like, how is she doing that? How is she letting us see this without being obvious about it, without just doing dialogue? And then you talked about that third episode uh, called uh, Paula, named after the uh, mistress that Johan uh, takes, who we never see, but is talked about constantly. And Liv Ullman's Marianne, she believed that so that everything was fine. She so believed that this couldn't happen to her. And even when he reveals it to her, she kind of still doesn't believe it. She kind of takes about half the episode just to process it. But then when she processes, when she realizes that her marriage is going to be over, the performance that Liv Ullman gives to express her her hurt her frustration her desperation uh her grasping it's one for the ages i feel i'm giving some actresses a little short shrift but that's because this is the last film i saw of bergman's i saw before this podcast (laughs) and her performance is so immolating in this one that i literally rank Elman in this and another Bergman film to be just below the level of Renee Falconetti in The Passion of Joan of Arc. It's that good. You are so right, Brad, because there's moment after moment where she doesn't even say anything, and yet all the conflicting emotions come across her face. Notably, there is a moment in episode four where she hears that Erland might be leaving Paula, and in the flash of, a, of a, two or three seconds, you see like her whole hit, marital history and her whole sense of readjusting her set of what she's going to do in reaction to this new information is all present in her face. This whole third podcast we're doing here really made me realize I have not appreciated Leave Ullman enough. There are multiple films in here that I feel like she just gave like 
some of the best performances I've seen. But you mentioned her face, Al, and really I think that she and Bergman are just like a perhaps the most perfect match of actor and director I, I can think of because Bergman is so intent on focusing on faces and Lee Allman just I mean she is just gifted in a way that very few others are. Yes. She uses the face as like almost could be a camera lens. The the emotional connection between what we know she's thinking and feeling is that direct. That connection is so pure and powerfully delivered. At the end of the Paula episode where she's talking on the phone to their some mutual friends to find out some more information and just her gradual escalation of realizing like how much she's not been aware of the situation is also just delivered absolutely wonderfully her character has to deliver several hairpin turns of mood and expression and she is never less than fully convincing of letting you feel and understand why she's uh why her feelings have changed so abruptly in a lot of ways this corrects some of the problems we had with the touch because on the one hand, you had complex characters with no chemistry with each other in the earlier film. Here, even though this is a toxic relationship and, and ends up going very badly, the chemistry between the two actors is undeniable. So when you have scenes where, by all rights, Marianne should just have left the building and left the movie and gone elsewhere, she keeps coming back. And there's a, there's a point in which she gains her own agency. But this doesn't happen until some of the final episodes. So before that, it's really a matter of how is she going to basically survive the emotional blackmail that Johan is kind of delivering onto her in his incredibly selfish ways he wants to organize this relationship with just happens to always work in his benefit. And one of Ullman's greatest feats is she's able to take these character arcs in a way where we do not see her as a doormat. We do not see her as somebody who is making unreasonable decisions. We under we don't agree necessarily with the amount of leeway she gives him, but she's conveying every bit of motivation as to why she's doing so. And what I love about this series, and it ties back into Cries and Whispers for me a bit, and because it acknowledges where the series goes. The fifth episode, I believe, is titled Emotional Illiterates. Yes. And I think that is such a great <laughs> phrase because it really is these people struggling through their emotional reaction to each other throughout the course of it. And the series, similar to Cries and Whispers, then does acknowledge a connection between the two of them, despite the litany of just terrible things that have happened to them, which at one point involves Erwin Josephson physically attacking Levi Allman's character in, in a way that is not a minor thing. I mean, he punches oh, her, yeah. he kicks her. It's a, it's a very tough thing to watch. But even despite that, the series says there's still something between those two that is worth acknowledging. And it's really, you need the time that the series takes to get you past those things, uh, past those horrible things, because in the absence of taking that time, it's too much to get over. But the time the series takes and the performances of the two really allow you to consider that. What I think makes this entire arc really strong is how much they hold back 
until the very moment of explosion. Because there is this kind of idea of properness and kind of being a polite bourgeois couple that the world uh, can look at and admire. And even after they separate, they still want to hold on to this kind of civilizing thing. But at a certain point, it becomes so strained that it breaks. And the tension between them trying to remain civilized and the animal anger that is naturally welling up uh, based on what's been going on in this relationship is just dramatic napalm. One of the reasons I, I love that phrase is because I think this this series connected with a lot of people because it acknowledged the discord beneath the surface, right? And I think just that phrase, emotional illiterates, is something everyone feels at one time or another. I mean, I certainly do. Mm -hmm. And the idea that, in a way, this is all something we're dealing with and that we're going to acknowledge the ugliness via this piece of art, kudos to everyone involved for being as raw as they are, because this series doesn't succeed without the rawness in the writing and the performing. And it really is something special. I love the fact that it doesn't go as raw as it could. It could very well have been like a case where they, where people immediately go to their triggers, retreat in their corners, and just start throwing emotional blows at each other. And it's it's to this film and series great credit that it doesn't do that. It has the sympathy to match with the empathy of both acknowledging these people's issues with each other while saying, "But no, this this person isn't the monster here." expressed through exemplary writing. Anyone where we feel we're going to get a definite answer, a character is ready with another aspect to let us look deeper. In fact, to your point on emotional literates, I believe um, Erlen Josephson literally says, they teach all sorts of things in people in school, mm -hmm. but they don't <laughs> teach people this. And it's kind of one of the most important, one of the most important things. We should talk a little bit about how influential this film is, because basically it invented Woody Allen. When he moved on from his comedies to his more serious character studies, I see scenes from marriage all over movies like Annie Hall and Manhattan. And Alan has been very openly a Bergman acolyte, so that's not a surprise. But even this year's big Oscar nominee marriage story is absolutely influenced by this film. You mentioned the Before series. Bergman's inventing this entire subgenre that Hollywood just ran with. If there's one thing where it doesn't have something about Bergman's that we've seen from other movies, it's that the visuals are not as expressive. And especially coming after Cries and Whispers, which is so purely brilliant on that score, it's a little bit of a shame, I think. Oh, I don't think it's a shame at all. I think it's a very deliberate decision. Bergman has shown that he can do visual flourishes when he wants and, and, and make them magnificent. The very lack of those, I feel, is its own artistic decision and that the movie would not benefit from that kind of presentation. Yeah, it very well could be just my just my mm -hmm. particular impression, what I really like responding to in movies that I would like more for. And also, to that end, my personal favorite in Scenes from a Marriage uh, was in the episode right before Illiterates, when they meet up at uh, Liv Ullman's place and they have a little dinner, 
And it both features one of the most, the super coolest examples of letting us think further about a story and also like Bergman's most quote unquote cinematic moment. It's when Liv Ullman opens up her journal and she says, and this is a great line, it's like, I thought all these problems were something that was being caused by the people around me. But then I realized the problem was is that I didn't know who I am. And then it changes to these this Lajete level of still shots to show the young Liv Ullman at different points of her mm-hmm. life. Then it expands from that to start showing pictures of the young Erland Josephson and his part of his life. You get this sense of humanity, longing for something, for people to get past these structures and like obstacles and obligations that, that separate people from each other. And this really wonderful sentiment is just getting expressed on this photographic terms. And then it, it cuts to Ullman closing the journal and then looking and it pans to Josephson, who's fallen asleep. <laughs> it just, yeah, it's, it just shows there's sometimes it just takes a lot of energy <laughs> to put something like that together. Bergman directs his energies to a completely different avenue when he releases the magic flute in Based on the famous opera by Mozart, we begin with the audience watching a stage production of the Magic Flute. It's a comedic fantasy about a heroic prince convinced by the Queen of the Night to rescue her daughter from her seemingly wicked father. This leads to a series of quests that test both the prince and his slightly more simple friend who has followed him along on his journey. So I have to start... My part of the discussion of this film with a a confession, and I think it's important that as people talking about film that you guys know where we're coming from, and I have to be honest that I have never quite warmed up to opera. I love music, I love theater, but the opera format just has never really appealed to me. So that might color kind of my ambivalence towards the film, it might indeed be a great rendition of a great opera, but I don't necessarily have the context to know whether that's the case or not. So I kind of look at, well, what's Berkman doing as a filmmaker in order to present this opera to us? And there's certainly some interesting things, but uh, there's, there's also some things that, for me, detract which are the very often returning focus to the audience watching the opera, Mm. and also the strange tendency of the actors to sing looking directly to camera. Yeah, like I was saying about the informed attribute, (laughs) 
what can we show to show that you should care about the opera, but then showing uh, uh, a bunch of faces in rapt attention uh, of what they're watching. Bergman does no favors by what might be his worst intro to any of his films, which is a sustain, an overture, which is nothing but four minutes of looking at people's enraptured faces as they're listening in on this, on this music. And uh, there's no conversations. There's no different reactions. It's uh, cuts from face to face to face to which I'm felt like I was watching a shot of a security terminal. At, uh, by that, at the end of it. Let me uh, let me stick up for that segment a little bit because okay. um, because so I I too know nothing about opera. I have never seen one perform live. I'm not particularly enthralled with the genre itself. Um, but I like this more than I expected to. And one of the reasons was it was clear that Bergman really cares about opera and cares about this opera in particular. And I think what he's trying to do is use this as a way to introduce a wider array of people to opera. In the face segment, the multiple faces segment you're talking about is very pointedly multicultural. There are men, women, and various ethnicities presented in the film. And I think what he's saying is, is that this can appeal to everyone if you give it a chance. That's what he's going for. And I, I didn't mind that because I was really someone who came to this film reluctantly and had a better time than I expected to. And part of it was because his commitment and his passion for this subject matter and for the genre came through. Um, Peter, I absolutely agree with your sentiment in general. And I definitely see where that would, that is part of what he's doing by showing a montage of different people across these ethnicities. I just feel that it could have been more effective in 45 seconds or a minute to which. And I feel it draws itself out too long. He also focuses a lot of screen time on a young girl watching the show. This young girl, I believe, is played by his daughter. So mm -hmm. I guess father's prerogative. But at the <laughs> same time... The fact that we constantly cut back to her reaction, which is, is always pretty much the same. She, she, she's not an actor, so we shouldn't really expect more from her. But I, I don't know. To me, it just kept taking me out of the narrative of the opera. Uh, it's better than Sofia Coppola in Godfather 3. <laughs> <laughs> well, most things are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Winona Ryder was not supposed to be in the magic flute, though. So we... <laughs> um, uh, but to continue on to your point, Peter, the, yeah, I do feel the intent. I do feel the idea that when I'm, when I'm watching the film, and my opera experience is a grand total of three. And unfortunately, one of them is Dario Argento's film Opera, which may <laughs> may not be um, uh, technically accurate on the art form. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll allow it. It counts. <laughs> <laughs> but, but there's moments in this film where I feel that sense that Bergman is trying to say, hey, this part where these characters are emoting and want to express this emotion directly to you. That's where the close-ups, I think, work on two levels. Mm -hmm. Like... When they have an emotion that they want to say, the characters have an emotion that they want to say, this is a feeling that everyone has. That's why they look into the camera. Also find it very charming how often when they do it, they literally have the subtitles, but they're, it's clearly being held by stagehands just off frame. <laughs> and sometimes you even literally see a stagehand's forearm as they turn 
as they turn the subtitles to the next line of the lyric. If this film is about anything beyond the story of the magic flute, it's really about the artifice of watching a performance. And Bergman is trying his best to break down that uh, Pink Floydian wall between (laughs) what could end up a remote and distant artistic experience Mm -hmm. and an audience involvement. Really, this is a wonderful instinct he has to want to do it. I just don't think it works in any way for me. So then I'm kind of left with the opera itself, which is kind of this... uh, pretty standard fantasy uh, story of a uh, of a gallant prince rescuing a princess probably the most uh, interesting aspect of it uh, to me was that the character who initially is presented as the villain ends up not being the villain and i think uh, the best performance of the piece is the 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 mother queen of the night who is eventually revealed to be the the opera's real villainess yeah i i thought the plot of this thing was just flat out garbage it, was, it, was, it, it, it really didn't make a ton of sense and I, the thing i struggle with with this movie was that by its very nature opera is exaggerated and heightened mm-hmm. and the fact that we've talked about bergman's ability to focus on faces here indicates that film is much uh, far more subtle uh, medium than opera is and too often that leaves you with less than talented actors mugging directly to the camera, particularly our two male leads, I think right. are very weak in this film. And we should mention that the, the performers here were hired for their singing ability. Mainly. Right, they can all sing like the right. Yeah, right. It, but they're not actors. Right. And it, you spend a lot of time with our two male leads, particularly kind of the sidekick character, Papa Gino, who... I mean, he looks like he's performing a 70s commercial most of the time. He's sitting there like this kind of glib look on his face. There's too much of him and too much of our male, other male lead. It's not enough to carry the film. He's our comic relief. Yeah. Uh, although the one thing I kind of liked about that is he, he's looking uh, for a wife. He's looking to be paired up. And of course, he runs into somebody named Papa Gina. <laughs> Who could have thought that Papagino and Papagina might belong together? Mm. I was a little forewarned by you guys. You have seen the uh, movie before me, and I'm very happy you gave me fair warning about Papagino. And maybe it's partly because I was adjusted, but I didn't mind him as much. And I feel part of it is because I feel the original opera as it was developed, he was already a ridiculous character. He's I feel that he's kind of meant to be a very, very simplified, purified version of what the farmer at the end of Smiles of a Summer Night is. Hmm. I'm just going to embrace life. But both in his demeanor and his outfit, he more comes across to like, oh, so apparently Mozart invented the character of Shaggy from the Scooby-Doo cartoon. Well, you... (laughs) Dressed in green, always hungry, always scared, can't shut up. But the story is aware of it because soon after his pan flute appearance... Three witches' assistants decide it's a great idea for him to to put a lock on his mouth. <laughs> so everybody in the opera already knows this guy's 
This guy's an idiot. Well, th- those witches should have got a hold of uh, Ingmar because Ingmar does not know how to par- properly dole out uh, Papagino because there is way too much of him in this. He is supposed to be the comic relief, and maybe he, there's more of him because our 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 lead is sort of like a dull plank of wood who does right. nothing. But yeah. th- you can't compensate for nothing by giving us an overload of something else. Like that doesn't fix the situation. There's just too much of it. I was just more taken by him or less annoyed by him because he's just a collection of different parts of humanity that I don't get. Like he's he's got a a face that looks like Richard Roper or Sean Astin as Samwise Gamgee, and and yet he has the Barry Gibbs slash Sean Cassidy hair going on. He has the pure green from Errol Flynn's Robin Hood, and he acts continually in the movie like Don Knotts in a haunted house. <laughs> yet every time he opens his mouth, he has this really deep voice. <laughs> so I guess I was more uh, uh, the disparity was helping me right along for a lot of the annoying parts of uh, of his characterization. But yeah, I was all. Also, not taken by the story. I don't know how this tale is so beloved in opera terms because even in terms of a fable or a fairy tale, I, there's things that don't add up, like how particular people get set up to battle or how someone's jealousy arrives at just like what appears to be a completely random moment. And also, certain groups are defeated rather perfunctorily, considering how much they've been built up. I really have to say I do like the twist done by the the person that ostensibly you think that the prince is rescuing, a fellow by the name of Sarastro, <laughs> who comes across to me like a bearded version of Orson, looks like a bearded version of Orson Welles. Physically, he looks a lot like Orson Welles. Yeah, and plus the way how it becomes, his character becomes a lot more upon like leading a group, leading a community, a, a turn that I found fascinating to the extent that, like, I would love to appropriate a catcher. like, what would Sarastro do? <laughs> <laughs> well, here are the things I, I'm wondering as an, as an opera ignoramus is, one, is this a, a children's story? Mm. Well, maybe this was written to be for kids. I think it is. And, yeah. then, and then, two, perhaps the real value to fans is not so much anything we've been talking about, but just the quality of the singing and mm-hmm. uh, the music written by this uh, young up-and-coming kid named Mozart. Right, <laughs> yes. If we were uh, aware that this was meant to be more a childlike tale, an example of like pure childlike whimsy, then... To the extent that I feel that, like, you guys, to you guys listening in, if you can push past the side from what actually happens in the opera and just look at it as an example of what Bergman wants to say, this is what can be very cool about the opera, how you can take artifice and staging and be able to get, like, hit, like, emotional registers and just see phenomenal vocal talents. That's where I think a lot of the extreme close-ups give out some value because I see a focus on, like, people's lips and people's throats. Bergman is wanting to show you what they're doing is really, really hard. They're really belting out these these incredibly high volumes and complex vocal phrasings and yet have to maintain a composure like without like just bellowing things out. And this really manifests itself wonderfully in the the Queen of the Night character. <laughs> because even I, with my limited opera knowledge, I know when someone's doing a kick-ass guitar solo. I can tell that someone's doing a kick-ass guitar solo in opera terms. 
all the other characters are are doing these very big vocal um, efforts, but she is taking it to the next level with these trills and bouncing all across like a multiple octave scale in a way that just when you see a phenomenal gymnastic performance or a great fight scene or a great car chase scene, it thrills on the level of what opera can do in the same way that those cinema elements or elements of performance can do. Yeah, just one last thing before we leave. The one directorial touch I really like to this is the Birdman does give us an intermission of sorts where we go um, behind the curtain and mm -hmm. we see the preparation or the actors just kind of milling about playing chess, taking a smoke break, reading, I think, Mad Magazine or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is one of his um, undercutting the artifice, showing you the processings that really mm -hmm. works very well. I think probably because everything we've seen before that is very exaggerated. Mm -hmm. I, I, did, I really like that touch. It brought me closer to that. And there's a cute like reflection of, of his granddaughter, even in the artifice, because there's a little kid who's dressed like one of the de demons who is like sort of the side, sort of a side demon, and he's sort of hanging around, but he's still dressed as a demon and skitters away when the characters who had inhabited the story resume their human forms. We then move on to Face to Face, released in 1976. Dr. Jenny Isaacson is a respected psychiatrist who moves in with her elderly grandparents while her husband and daughter are abroad. She soon develops a tentative relationship with another doctor she meets at a party, but already prone to visions and nightmares, her mental deterioration opens up the darkest regions of her psyche. I am eternally grateful for having the Director's Club and the Director's Club attempt at the Bergman 101 for films such as this. A film that I assume due to rights issues didn't even manage to make it onto the massive Criterion Bergman box set. But for the Bergman 101, we needed to see it. And I am so, so happy I did because this is my personal favorite Bergman movie, at least at the moment. <laughs> Maybe when I see Wild Strawberries or um, A Lesson in Love Again, I'll change. But I really love this film. And for, for two particular reasons. One of which is that whereas Bergman has excelled in doing different kinds of films that we've, and we've talked about like how amazingly he did work in films like Wild Strawberries, like Persona, and so on. This feels to me like he has moments of all of these films. There are expressions of, of like questions of your internal psychology in this film that harken back to cries and whispers, which include a really great use of color. There's moments in this film that use an examination to people's dreams and people's psyches and people's desires, which 
harkens back to what was happening in Wild Strawberries, including a really good twist on the first dream sequence from Wild Strawberries. And there's a formal way of how it's showing a person like lost in society that he, that Bourbon was looking at in films like The Passion of Anna and The Touch that mixes in with those elements as well. The potential of this movie and the potential for me to look, examine it and cherish it and absorb it is through the roof because I almost feel this could be like the magnus opus, the uber Bergman as it was. Well, it's interesting that you refer to it as the magnum opus because we should mention that this uh, was originally a TV series similar mm. to Scenes from a Marriage. Originally four parts and running just under three hours. So the version we saw was a single film edited to two hours and 16 minutes. And I feel like there's maybe potential for a lot more here, but I do have problems with it as it's presented here. For me, there's two things happening simultaneously with this film. One is there's a lot of excellently filmed sequences that do everything you were talking about. It is a deep dive into the psychology of this character the way only Bergman can do. And it's reminiscent of some of his earlier triumphs uh, from uh, Prison to Wild Strawberries to uh, Through a Glass Darkly, everything with a, a disturbed character and a dream sequence. And in this one, there's a particularly uh, vivid image we see of a uh, of a one-eyed woman who's uh, constantly haunting uh, Liv Ullman's nightmares. And so we have these visually stunning set pieces. Then we have another of Liv Ullman's masterful performances. Liv Ullman dominates this film in a way that I think we're going to continue talking about. So I'm just going to, for now, move on to what I think did not work, which is any kind of structure or cohesiveness. <laughs> so it, it's like all great stuff, but it's also a holy mess. It doesn't come together in, in any way f for me to tell a story. And here's what I wonder. I wonder if that's exactly what would have been corrected if we had had a chance to see this miniseries version. Because there's nothing that's wrong with this film that I can't imagine being fixed in an extended cut that recognized different segments in the way the Scenes from Marriage miniseries recognized different segments. Th this mm. film alt very much needed to be segmented because what it is is a build-up to a character's suicide attempt and then the resulting fallout from that. And as presented here, it's just too much in a small dose. But if you had time to consider the stages the character takes and maybe had a day to consider... Uh, between each episode, I think it would work a lot better um, because here it just feels like, yeah, you used the word mess, Brad. I would agree. Like it just doesn't cohere in the way it needs to, to have the emotional impact. It should, it feels like it should be there, but as presented here, it just didn't land for me that way. I feel it's considerably less messy than, than, than you guys. Although yes, it's, the mess is there. There, the parts don't fully, the parts don't fully come together. And I agree with you, Brad, that I think if you had those, if those four episodes were separated in the right way, then I feel that this effort 
whatever you call it, a TV series or a film, could have been a conceptual triumph the same way that I adore uh, those waiting women in the way how – because I feel that it, this film is examining a person's crisis in the social way, in the realistic scenes from a marriage type way in the beginning. Upon the suicide attempt, it's dealing with things in a psychological way. And then when you have these three or four dream sequences, they're dealing things in a, in a, in a more spiritual and more thoughtful and more conceptual way. And if each episode was to give a different examination of this character and her crises and the things that she was going through, then it could have been just some absolutely epic masterpiece. As it is, yeah, the blocks don't, the blocks don't fully connect. The square peg doesn't quite get into the round hole. Bergman effectively sometimes pounds it through, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but it does not flow. It well, doesn't flow. Well, in one just quick clarification, the reason we're um, saying what could be is that despite trying, we cannot find the TV version of this anywhere. Right. It doesn't seem to be available on DVD or Blu-ray. It's not on the internet. Unfortunately, we weren't able to find that for a true comparison, but if you watch the film, it's very self-evident. I would be shocked if the TV version weren't significantly better than the film version. Mm -hmm. And for me, I don't mind the fact that it doesn't all come together because I really respond to films such as, say, Donnie Darko, whose ambitions and, uh, and uh, the chance to reach for something greater, even if they fall short, is better than a, a safer film that is more conventional or conventionally satisfying. Um, but, but to that end, for this film's ambition, this, this includes to the idea of by, that by the end, you get a really, really elevated, high and incredibly intense uh, mental breakdown scene that, in terms of the story, just seems just too much like you really the character as depicted would have like kind of have to end up catatonic after the kind of breakdown that they that they experienced in in the end of in the end of this film but this led to just a, a, the revelation of how i'm absolutely awestruck by Liv Ullman's performance in here she has two completely different mental breakdown scenes where you see mental breakdown in a completely different way. Um, not just the ending scene, but in an earlier scene where she's talking with Erlen, uh, a character played by Erlen Josephson, which I literally felt was that Liv Ullman saw B.B. Anderson's performance of her confession in Persona and said, B.B., here's my absolute. <laughs> now stand the hell back. And she just swamps it. Everything that you that I that I recall you said you felt about her desperation, BB Anderson's desperation to describe this story was something that I personally didn't didn't feel, but I felt it incredibly much in this one. She was absolutely necessary for her to say to tell this story, which is similarly it's a confessional about a, a se- about a sexual encounter that leads to some particularly troublesome and conflicting areas about her uh, her feeling of what happened but you feel it so so much and when she does her second breakdown i feel like it's she doing the same thing to harriet anderson and through a glass darkly it's like you did a really good job in in that now let me show you how this shit is done and by the end i'm just thrilled i'm in absolute ecstasy upon how Liv ullman is getting so much. Bergman is giving her so much horror, like horror and depravity and dissolution and breakdown to do, and she's delivering it. She's absolutely handling it. 
I'm amazed by what she did. I want to isolate the second breakdown scene because okay. it's just it's just one of the most intense pieces of acting I've ever witnessed. Just isolated from everything else. You literally want to stop the film and ask the actress if she's going to be okay. Pick your scene of extreme behavior in any film you'd like. Liv Ullman commits to this breakdown in a way that is viscerally scary and intense and just makes you appreciate the commitment that an actor could lend to their craft. Yeah, absolutely virtuoso. I mean, I don't even know what other adjective or superlative to, to use. It really is something that everyone needs to see. As good as the performance is, it does highlight another prog- problem I have with Bergman sometimes, in that he seems to put a lot of issues onto one person and then is unsure how to write the characters around them. And I do feel like other characters around Liv's character here are underwritten, particularly the Erwin Josephson character. Liv's character has one of the worst support systems ever seen on film. <laughs> I mean, like Erwin Josephson stays with her in the hospital and then randomly takes off to Jamaica for an unknown reason. Her husband flies back in from a conference he's at for a day following her suicide attempt and then has to go back. It works somewhat here to say that she's been abandoned, but I really do feel like Bergman's focus on the one character highlights the lack of time he's spent on characters around her. Erlen Josephson is outright miscast here because he's playing the character the same way he played Johan in uh, Scenes from a Marriage. This is not that character. This character is actually a pretty nice guy who's fallen in love with Liv Ullman's character. But Erlen Josephson, for some reason, does not play him like that. <laughs> so you have a, a strange disconnect. They, they meet at a, at a weird 70s party held by this old woman with a, a bevy of uh, young men. And they're just sitting in the back like, uh, like a demon is Erlen Josephson just <laughs> looking <Yes>. on. <laughs> so he's presented in this really foreboding way. And then when he turns out to be a, a nice guy, it's like, well... Why was he presented that way at all then? Yeah, he's sort of photobombing the party almost. (laughs) Like, it it is sort of bizarre. We mentioned, I believe in the touch, that there's a lot of stuff piled on near the end to maybe acknowledge that that facet of the story isn't working. Here you find out very late in the game that the reason he's at that party is that his lover has taken another partner. Apparently their own Joseph character is either gay or bisexual, and there really hasn't been any hint of that, either in Joseph Josephson's performance or the writing up to that point. And it, it just sort of underlined for me the fact that Bourbon really didn't know what he was doing with this character. Mm-hmm. Like, Liv is good enough to carry this movie on her own, but I think Bourbon sort of lets the story down. Because he's not just a nice guy. He's not just a friend. He's the best friend Liv Ullman has ever had. Literally at her side at like three moments of crisis during the movie. 
And we were talking about the informed attribute. This is the anti-informed attribute. So much of the stuff he does earlier is completely contrary to how he behaves over um, uh, how excessively helpful and caring he is at the end of the movie. Oh, but, he, but he also does... Now, now, keep in mind, the setting for this is this is a woman who has just attempted suicide, who is trying to o- get over that. And the Josephson character at the end, despite doing all the things you just highlighted, Al, for no reason that's been foreshadowed at all, says he's going to Jamaica and will not see Liv's character again. Right. And it's just like, what? Like, what, where did this come from? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it just it just is another facet of this movie that doesn't come together. Yeah, I, I agree. Part of his ambition and the scope just leads to things that just come across like wrong, especially in this swinger party. This is Bergman's happening, and it freaks me out, <laughs> especially when you see this uh, older lady where she's trying to uh, tell uh, Liv Ullman's character to loosen up. And But but you might not want to follow her method of loosening up, which appears to be pouring a straight line of eight martinis in a row. <laughs> but well, what will you be having? <laughs> Bergman's view in all these films of the 70s of just 70s young people swinging party life is hysterical. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it almost gets to um, Otto Preminger skidoo type levels (laughs) at times. But but for every scene that hits you a little wrong or like, wait, Jamaica? Why are you making Jamaica a thing now? There's these moments which are just flat out brilliant. Of course, every moment of emotional desperation by Ullman, but there's one of Bergman's greatest shots of all time. Uh, a shot so formally brilliant conceived that Michael Haneke would weep in how dedicated it is. She pays a visit to her house, which is so totally empty that has this great symbolic meaning for the stuff she finds missing in her life. But never more so when she go when there's a shot of two rooms bisected by a post in ex- the exact middle. And one side is completely empty. On the other side is a is a broken down woman in a, a state of disrobing who's lying on the floor. And as Liv Ullman enters that room, some other characters enter and they push her into the other room. And this becomes this incredibly traumatic before and after look at like her psychology and at her moment of desperation, but in an unbroken, sustained sequence, just focusing on these two rooms, each lit a slightly different way. It's absolutely masterful. Yes, this movie is magnificence in isolation. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's an abundance of riches that got put in a blender. (laughs) Let's put it that way. From here, Bergman goes in quite a fascinating direction and continuing his filmography outside of his Swedish environment when he makes The Serpent's Egg, released in 1977. It's set in 1920s Berlin and stars David Carradine as Abel, an American Jew who finds his brother has committed suicide. 
In an environment of economic and political deterioration, as well as a series of suspicious murders, he moves in with his brother's cabaret-dancing widow and drowns his sorrows in alcohol. The unconventional couple receive jobs and housings from an unsavory and suspicious figure named Hans. Apparently, Bergman ran into some tax troubles in the mid-70s that uh, required him to leave the country temporarily, and he uh, settled in Germany, and as he did with Face to Face, he actually worked with uh, Dino De Laurentiis, of all people, as a uh, producer, and made his first and only Hollywood-style film, English-language film. It was filmed in Germany, but uh, it featured uh, David Carradine, who was pretty big around then as the star of the series Kung Fu. And what he did with that was make what I would consider a really poor ripoff of Bob Fosse's brilliant movie Cabaret. But how far along was this after Cabaret had played? Uh, Cabaret was 1972, and I think we're in uh, 1977 here. Man, that's really interesting, because there is a lot of scenes that are set in a cabaret, and I can totally see that in the aspect of the cabaret scenes in the film Cabaret are so insightful. They're so creative. And it's so cool at being entertaining and then also informing the story... And when I see a si these similar cabaret dance and performance sequences in Serpent's Egg, they come across as, oh, this is sexy. Oh, this is weird. Oh, it's sexy and weird. Where is it weird and where is it sexy? It so feels so surface level as to what cabaret was dealing so richly. Yeah, and it's not just the fact that they take place in cabarets. It's really the same theme for both films, which is when a society becomes so self-indulgent and so without boundaries morally and having basically the rise of Nazism being a background threat because Hitler has not yet come to power. It's actually a little further on in, in the timeline in Cabaret than it is here because mm. uh, the Nazis aren't even around yet, but as the title insinuates they are the titular serpent's egg. But the, what, what this movie does is kind of tells you what its themes are, basically through dialogue, as opposed to uh, showing it the way uh, Fosse did in a really stimulating, artistic, and exciting way. I think a lot of this is because Bergman is just not working in his comfort zone. Bergman, we've talked about, he shoots faces. He he delves deep into, into characters. He's not the guy you want to do a Hollywood epic. It just doesn't match. And any interesting ideas, and I think there are some interesting ideas in the film uh, that he has, uh, for me, are just wasted when we're led by David Carradine giving an absolute nothing performance. Yeah, th there's there's a good movie in here somewhere. Bergman can't find it, and Carradine stumbles all over it. He has the dual disadvantage of, I think, being miscast and giving a bad performance, even with what he's trying to do. 
his character play is a drunk here. And I think as far as I can tell, I think what Bergman's trying to say is that that's one proper reaction to a world that's going down the tubes. But Carradine isn't at all convincing in that way. The plot bounces all around and then ultimately wants to pat itself on the back for identifying something that's pretty obvious in the rise of Nazism. It looks really good. He has a big budget here. It was filmed on sets that look great. And Lee Allman is in it. She's not given a ton to do, and her character makes really odd choices. And the film has a really head-slappingly stupid ending <laughs> on top of all this. This is really a misstep, and you can kind of understand how it came to be, given where he was in his life, exiled from home, under investigation, etc. The movie devolves into a spewing of nihilism in a lot of ways, and I think that's where Bergman was coming from during this time in his life. Maybe the best thing I can say about it is that Gert Frobe, Eric Gert Frobe, gives maybe my favorite performance in the film, and he's well known for being Goldfinger in the James Bond movie. So that, that's probably the best thing you have going. Well, for I here. never made that connection. I would have watched the movie entirely differently if I'd realized that. I, I looked at him and I, I, I saw that guy's box-like uh, frame and his and his facial features, and I remember watching him and going, "Man, what kind of Goldfinger-looking dude is this guy?" Like. <laughs> Then I saw the cast list. Oh, it is. What do you know? It is the, uh, that is him. The only other role I've ever, uh, I've, I've ever seen of him. This movie I enjoy quite a bit more than uh, than you guys. I think Carradine's biggest thing that he has to offer is that uh, his kung fu training has served him well because I find him very gymnastic in a lot of scenes. And uh, he is playing a circus acrobat. He is playing a circus yeah. acrobat, in, and he in, does in, jump over a railing at one yeah. point. I'll give him that. A couple railings. A couple yeah. railings. He he is almost seems and notably, there's a breakdown scene where he uh, tries to escape from a bunch of police pursuing him across this dilapidated police station, causing him to leap across stairwells. And it got me to just laugh out loud when I watched it because. I'm looking at how decrepit these stairwells are and this police station is, how empty it is, how broken down, and how he's jumping. It's like, wait a minute. I'm seeing the Jackie Chan movie directed by uh, Andrzej Tarkovsky. <laughs> par parkouring his way through Ingmar Bergman. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. But Bergman's doing some other directorial touches I was not expecting in this. And I guess that's partly why I have such a positive response. A surprisingly one. I was not had high expectations about a David Carradine starring vehicle. But when I saw that there, there is an opening scene where he arrives at a boarding house where him and his brother are staying, and I'm looking at this and thinking, wait, this is kind of an Altman-type direction. Because as he's entering this house, he goes to a bathroom, but someone's already in the bathroom and screams from to close the door. And then he, uh, Carradine passes by this open door where people are in the background are having a very festive celebration, joins in for a bit, then walks up the stairs, and then... In an interesting choice, you see it through the open door that his brother has blown his brains out, but you just see it from a distance. And it's held there while um, Carradine's figure just tries to absorb the information. And, I, and I'm getting such an interesting sense of like the, uh, the camera pushing people off balance direction that I'm familiar with from Altman. This includes several times in the movie, characters would leave the frame and the camera would stay in an empty room and then do a sudden zoom to like a picture or something. I'm like, whoa, there's some crazy images stuff happening in here. And this feeling led me to the end to go, oh my God, I'm seeing Bergman doing an early 1930s Fritz Lang movie. And that helped me along to appreciate this film quite a bit because 
in films such as The Testament of Dr. Mabuse and the rest of the Mabuse series, in Spies, and even in M, which I think maybe I would count as his Fritz Lang's greatest work, he doesn't exactly need like the biggest, most nuanced characters. It's more along the lines of this pervasive sense of dread, which I think Bergman wonderfully makes evocative in this film. And the sense of an ongoing threat a case of oppression that can happen at any moment helps justify both like the alcoholism that David Carradine's character does and how absolutely inert his performance is when he is awake. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that anything justifies that performance, which which to okay. his credit is not quite Chuck Norris level, but it's it, it, it's getting there. Uh, but but you you did hit on kind of what I consider like a bit of a saving grace here, which is the Fritz Lang homages and those are interesting because you don't expect Bergman to so overtly reference another filmmaker. Yes. I can't think of another instance in which he's done this, but he sure does it here. You have the inspector who is right out of M. You have a villain right out of Dr. Mabuse. And you do have this set in the same period that uh, the Fritz Lang uh, German Expressionist films were filmed. And that that's really interesting. But for me, that's kind of the extent that it's interesting. There's mm -hmm. not much more to it for me. Yeah, than that. The, the plotting of the film, which to be a successful film of the type you're referencing, I think should be there. And this film just has so many missteps. Basically, Carradine at one point, he, he discovers they're living, he and Liv Oman are living in a house that has hidden cameras everywhere. And he breaks down all these cameras, roll, runs through the labyrinth that they were obscuring, then finds out that Lee Volman has died and yet goes to work the next morning mm -hmm. where he then is able to find his way into the Nazi torture chamber where Bergman stages a series of artfully filmed snuff pieces and it's just like what what where did all this come from and then not only that but there's a mad scientist basically at the end who when the police inexplicably close in on him takes a cyanide capsule out of nowhere and has this ridiculously over-the-top death scene and you're just like this was as close to the ending of his spy movie, This Can't Happen Here, that we talked about in the first episode, mm -hmm. where it's just like, this totally went off the rails, he lost control of it, and they're just going to be throwing a bunch of stuff at the screen. Well, I guess you don't like Bergman's noir, right? <laughs> which is fair. <laughs> no, um, I give a lot more credit in this film than It Can't Happen Here. Clearly, at the end of that movie, Bergman gives up, just straight up like, I'm just going to throw up some wackiness. But... It speaks to me in the sense that I felt that he was doing, and much like how in Face to Face it shows these things and like a, a her crisis is shown in a, in a social term and it becomes psychological, becomes spiritual and becomes like dreamlike. I felt this is a curdling version of that expressed that like, here's an oppressive, scary, dangerous situation that's done in realistic terms, in period piece. It's a period piece thing, but I felt the descent. See, I felt there was a progression, and I felt things were getting weirder and weirder and weirder. There's a moment in the film Parasite that just, uh, that was in theaters. Where it works in a similar way for me. And I'm, in no way am I saying Serpent's Egg is as good as Parasite. I'm just going to say that right out. Right. But one of the joys of that film, right, is these film, this thing that you think is just a realistic story. But then some characters go on a descent. And you just start thinking, whoa, this is, this is an unexpected descent. Where the hell are we going? And that feeling of like this pit 
when when Carody is running and then the places he's running, the tunnels become more twisted, they become more nightmarish, then they start becoming wider, and all these random kind of cots with various torture implements on them start showing up, and then these mirrors start showing up. I just felt like, oh my god, it's the film is psychologically becoming more nightmarish under my very eyes. Well, this is something I that was, I respond to. I think to. it was physically becoming more nightmarish. I yes. mean, Bergman retains this ability to have this visual eye. And he retains that here. All that stuff does look great. The fact that he's given a Hollywood budget and a Hollywood uh, production design definitely shows. And there, there's some cool set pieces. I just couldn't find anything deeper to grab onto. I think, right. I think what this movie really needs is to digitally insert modern day Nicolas Cage back into it. <laughs> get get Lucas on that. Let's let's do that. And that's basically the tone of the movie. Nicolas Cage in Leaving Las Vegas would kill. In fact, heck, I think even if they digitally inserted his Wicker Man remake performance, it would have improved the film. No, yes. I was thinking more Wicker Man, Nicolas Cage, honestly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're you're right. You're right. It uh, reminds me of a certain De Palma movie that shall not be named where the things that in the movie that would otherwise be compelling in a nightmare way, you lose it when you have such a blocked cipher in the center. Bergman will dramatically shift styles once again as we discuss Autumn Sonata, released in 1978. Eva lives a quiet life with her husband and disabled sister, soon disrupted by a long-delayed visit by her estranged mother, Charlotte. Charlotte is a world-renowned concert pianist and a domineering personality, now beset by old age. The mother and daughter reunion starts out cordially, but soon long-buried resentments will stay buried no longer. This is a fascinating film in terms of watching what does it mean for Team Bergman to see Team Hollywood. Because you are, you're getting the performance from Liv Ullman combined with a very unconventional presentation for her by Ingrid Bergman as the mother. Ingrid Bergman, of course, best known for her 1940s Hollywood films, but maybe as more of a preparation here, also did a number of European films with her then-husband, uh, Roberto Rossellini. As an older woman, she is unrecognizable from her glory days in Casablanca and Notorious, but her acting is wonderful and very much of a different style than Liv Ullman, and I think that tension really lends itself to the tension between the two characters. We've seen various Bergman films which contrast kind of the emotional and the intellectual. This is more like digging into buried regrets that are dug up and just heaped on people despite your best efforts to keep them buried. This is about a 90-minute film 
that consists of the arguments we were talking about in scenes from a marriage, but instead of a married couple here, we have a mother and a daughter. And we, we dig just as deep, and the writing here is just as good, and the performances are excellent. Coming off the Serpent's Egg, and, and this period of Bergman is pretty up and down for me, but this is a real highlight. I feel you're absolutely correct in all, all that you mentioned, but at the same time, what you said ironically puts a lot of value towards seeing the expanded version of Scenes from Marriage, <laughs> because all that emotion over five hours could be wonderful. All that emotion over three hours, still really, really good. In 90 minutes, it became quite a bit overheated for me. The momentum of it is very much like an onrushing train. And if you're like, you're um, describing things of buried things being unburied, this felt like the emotional uh, version of like the ending scenes from Poltergeist. <laughs> like so much, so much gets unloaded by Liv Almond, and there's so much baggage that these people have between each other that when I watch the film, I just go, but you guys were just having a nice walk in the park 20 minutes ago. You you were happily having tea together. How, how does that happen? <laughs> and it left me a little lost. One thing I love about this film is the way it is foreshadowed. There is this great scene where Liv Ullman does a piano recital uh, for her mother. And you could tell from Bergman's performance uh, and just from the way the character has been drawn out, she's this great pianist herself. She's also this perfectionist, judgmental about her daughter. We kind of know that already. And you could just tell by the reaction as Liv Ullman is playing, that Ingrid Bergman is silently disapproving and trying because she doesn't want to have a giant blow up is not going to say what she thinks, but through nonverbal methods, the, the actors are really able to convey this idea that she might as well be saying, you stink. You're horrible at this, even though she says none of those things. And then when she takes her turn, playing the same piece. It's very much a, uh, a one-upmanship that Liv Ullman's character takes very personally. So I think the film, to these non-confrontational moments that raise tension, prepares us for when the dam bursts. And finally, everything that's been hidden all these years comes out. It, it's kind of like what we were talking about with scenes from a marriage and this facade of politeness. They hug because that's what they're supposed to do. They're, they're mother and daughter. But the resentments are there all along. And when they come out, it's electrifying. It's emotionally powerful. The tension here is between an artist who has not been around to raise her child or has treated her child poorly because she's been following her muse or following art, and then the resentment that the child has as a result of that. And we know Bergman has been very much that type of parent himself. And as he gets older, I, I think he's starting to wonder, like, what has the cost been to those around me and what has that done? While at the same time trying to justify the commitment to art as something that is at least viewed as equivalent 
in his mind. And I think it's just really interesting that even at this late stage, he's not settling down emotionally. He's still digging in to those ugly feelings and examining them in a way that is as raw as some of the stuff in scenes from a marriage. And on top of that, his writing here is just outstanding. And one of my favorite lines from this movie is during the long fight scene, Liv Ullman's character tells Ingrid Bergman's character, um, when I'm too ashamed to go on, I'll let you try to explain. Hmm. And I thought that that's that just so perfect and that she's unburdening, unburdening herself. Um, and she knows that there, that civility you reference, Brad, is gone, that propriety is gone, and she's going to feel shame. But she needs to do it, and she wants to hear the explanation for the behavior that's created this situation. And just the fact that he's willing to dig into that as a writer and that we have two such skilled performers here is why it's one of my favorite of late Bergman. To go off what you're saying, Peter, what I really like about some of the films we've talked about is how he's not just taking a scalpel to his own psyche, but he's also giving a magnifying glass, maybe pointing at the sun so it has a piercing, a burning sensation to his earlier work. I think part of the reason I respond so positively towards face to face is how he's clearly looking at feelings that it was important to him in Wild Strawberries, in Through a Glass Darkly, in Persona, and he's giving them another look and he's turning them around, turning them, readjusting them, re-examining, and so on. And even in efforts that didn't quite work, like Passion of Anna, I, that sense of exploration. And one of the things that I really like about Anna Sonata is it's a re-examination and a much bigger, deeper, thoughtful expansion on what he was doing at the very end of an early drama of his, To Joy. It's all about two characters who also were, well, one character is very bad to the other people in his life. But he's also part of a group that's making this wonderful piece of music. And it was an examination of what does it mean for, like, flawed people with the all these problems to be able to contribute to make great art. And in that scene where these two people are playing the same piece by Chopin, I think you're getting a really complicated look at something music, which I think is, I feel music is like, gets the people's emotions and feelings in a super direct way. So it's interesting how even that can fall short, even with people dedicating a lot of their effort towards this artistic pursuit, it can still fall short of communication. But I, I think one of the things from that scene is that the Ingrid Bergman character is only capable of being caught up in herself. She sees the daughter's poor performance as sort of reflecting on her in some way, I think. Mm. And, and you yes. see you see the scenes where she's alone in her bedroom and she's just talking about how all this impacts her and how she has another daughter who is disabled. And she's basically put that daughter in a home and forgotten about her, hasn't seen her for seven years. Yeah. And then the Liv Ullman character has taken her sister to live with her. And the mother, the Ingrid Berman character, doesn't even want to see her because it almost reminds her of the aging and failure and death that's coming for her. And she won't acknowledge that. And in fact, Liv Ullman doesn't even tell her that her daughter's there because she knew that if she told her, she wouldn't come at all which we find out through dialogue later, turns out to very much be the case. Yeah, this is a movie where I think if, um, apologies to those listening that we've sort of given a little bit away, but ironically it's to the movie's benefit because when I first saw the movie, I didn't know these details. 
So I thought it was it came across just to me as a surprise, along with Ingrid Bergman's character. But when you look at the movie, knowing that this was done as a deliberate provocation by Liv Ullman's character, it changes the tone significantly, as well as when you know all the baggage that Liv Ullman is carrying, the expression of her face when she sees Ingrid Bergman playing the Chopin piece, I just read the first time as intensity. Hmm. There's a lot more (laughs) of intense. Well, which, by the way, that particular moment, simultaneously, she has intensity, incredible hatred towards her mother, and also awe at the ability of her to play. All these things are being expressed by her suddenly watching. It's Oh yeah, this is acting at the highest level. And seeing it as, as a two-hander reminded me of the limited cast of Cries and Whispers. Yeah. And also the use of color in this film. And the look of, the, of this film reminded me of Cries and Whispers. It was a little bit more of a burnt orange uh, yes. feel Autumnal, to this yeah. film. Oh, uh, Autumnal, yeah. Yeah, I- exactly. And for me, the, the, those two movies make uh, quite the double feature is just what Bergman can do with a a small cast and a willingness to kind of look rawly at human suffering, at human nature, at human yeah. relationships, without any varnish, without anything the traditional drama requires, but just the opening of these wounds. Yeah. I totally agree with you on that. Like it, it's, um, I think just one tiny thing that dings the movie a little for me is it takes the cries and whispers thing a little too much in one direction in that the third person, the disabled sister is not given a lot of complexity. And it seems to me that she is, expressly done in the symbolic way, Peter, that you described. And especially there's a moment of incredible emotional tension at the end, which has her like stumbling and screaming down the stairs, which I feel like she's kind of, it's taking a human being and using her as the actual representation of the buried agony feelings. I I have that same note. I I wrote, is is the handicapped daughter too metaphorical? Is she she lives in her state or death coming for Ingrid's character? And like you said, there's a scene where she physically literally is crawling towards them. That isn't like paid off in any way. It's just, except in the sense that she's unheard and unnoticed. True. true, Yeah. Yeah. But, but it is like a bigger thing. Great point, man. Yeah, that is true. But it is a big scene that I think at least in some way wants the tension of perhaps something physical is going to happen to this girl and then that doesn't pay off that piece of it i agree emotionally Mm -hmm. it pays off yes but right and and also yes she she is very much she does not receive her own arc she is uh, her effect is symbolic on the other two characters Mm -hmm. yes i want to just add that there is a very nice positive is that i feel it's much more successful at something the passion of anna was trying to do but went a little overboard in the sense of pushing outside of in terms of facades, the things, the poses that people put on themselves. It's notably framed with a character, the husband of Liv Ullman, narrating to us mm-hmm. in a doorway to an office area that looks just almost, could almost be as stagey as something from the Magic Flute. You see Liv Ullman typing away. And it's an interesting way of showing that this guy, who's much more well-adjusted, to say the least, he really wants to understand the emotions going on between this unique Maybe not so unique, but this mother-daughter relationship. And it's just the difficulty it is to really see what what that really means. And that's also expressed really nicely in the letter. 
And there, I think you get to something that's been a very common concern of Bergman is like how inadequate it is, the means of communication or even art, to truly get into another person's head and understand what they're thinking and feeling. Well, and notably, too, I think that plays into the end of the film, which basically is cyclical. Like, basically, they go back into the same patterns they've had before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, the Ingrid Bergman character leaves, as she's done many times before. The daughter reverses course, feels like she's done something wrong, and sends a mm-hmm. pleading letter expressing her regrets and, and asking for forgiveness. Yes. And it's like, despite all the dredged up trauma they went through they ultimately fall right back into the same pattern they had before peter i'm so happy you brought that up because i find it just it's conceptually so wonderful when i looked at this movie i looked at those both those characters and it's sort of i feel it's the motion version of the same crisis that happened between the 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 question of the girl in bergman's first film crisis what do you do do you move or do you stay and Almond's character is defined by staying. She's in this spot. She's not moving. And that leaves her short. On the other hand, Ingrid Bourbon, she's always in motion. It's always the next thing. Always the next thing. Always the next thing. And so in a moment that kind of becomes a psychological version or a version to psychology what the ending of Liberty Valance is about history, both the characters do the things they're used to doing and we're aware of how empty it is. Ingrid Bergman's in motion. She's got a new destination. And she looks outside, and she sees nothing. Liv Allman is is saying, oh, things can be the same. Things can be the same. And it's a graveyard. One person's motion turns out to be as wanting as another person's stillness. Just like, ah, such a great move by Bergman on a film very well worth examining and re-examining. And speaking of re-examination... Bergman wants to give us another look at his favorite island in Pharaoh Document, 1979, released, ironically enough, in 1979. Almost a decade after the release of the original film, Bergman's follow-up revisits the residence and shape of the beloved island he calls home. It's not a world different than the first film we talked about, but it does make some changes. This is a feature-length film. Our The earlier documentary was just short of an hour. Mm-hmm. Here, the word that came to mind for me is elegiac. An older Bergman is a, is looking at the, the aging of the people on the island. Many are, are near death or have died, or actually do die during the course of the film. We actually see the funeral occur. And it's interesting in the same ways that the first film was for me and that you get a window into these people's lives. And you get a window, I think, into what Bergman was feeling at the time and that he's aging himself. Death has always been a big concern of his films. Is this the most interesting example of that? No, it has a lot of the same cinematic touches as the first film. Although there is one beautiful shot where you see a character eating alone, prepping his dinner alone, and it cuts to an outside shot of just a single light in his kitchen as Mm -hmm. he's by himself. And it's just a beautiful visual uh, depiction of isolation and loneliness and aging. Um, There's good stuff here, uh, but it's far from essential. 
Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd half agree with you. <laughs> um, the el the elegaic part, I'm glad you had that response to it, and there are certain films that can look back on, and, and uh, like Tarkovsky is so good at looking back at, at things that have been dissolute and looking for what was missing. But to me, it's kind of the difference between appreciating like these moments at the people's end of their lives and uh, wishing these people had died already and then actually by the end thinking that like, oh man, maybe I should kind of lie down myself. There is a particular moment where you see one farmer 20 years past his prime uh, clumping dirt from the side of the road onto a cart and I'm just like, even I feel Bellatar would have been like, dude, <laughs> there's a hole in the ground right there. The sooner you jump in, the better off you're going to be. But I think, I think what's poignant about that, if I'm remembering the characters correctly, is that that person has very purposely chosen to live on his own and do all the tasks on his own. Like he uh -huh. almost refuses connection. Yeah. And that to me is, I mean, that obviously ties into Bergman, who became more and more of a hermit ultimately hiding himself away yeah. like on, on this island. The film does repeat some of the tropes of, of the first documentary. We revisit some of the kids from the bus to find out yes. if they've left or not and what they've done. We had some ill-fated sheep in the first film. We have an unfortunately ill-fated pig in this one, which, by the way, hopefully the uh, mechanics of pig slaughter have improved since what's depicted in this film because that animal suffers and it is not easy to watch. Eli Roth might envy a moment where, like, the pig is just happily looking around and then he gets a particular hammer blow that comes out of nowhere as we're watching. And I know when I was looking at that, I was like, that's necessary, isn't it, Vangmar? <laughs> um, to be fair, at least in this movie, it's kept at a distance, a little medium distance, as opposed to the sheep in the first movie where where that camera's right up there and we're, we're going to find out which and how long the intestines are of this sheep. <laughs> um, I will say that my favorite point of the movie was the look at the kids because it cuts back to the footage from the earlier film and you're looking at that and, and, uh, and you're hearing all these kids saying... Uh, saying, oh, there's nothing to do, I hate it here, I can't wait to go away. And right at the moment where I was absolutely agreeing with them, it then cuts to you seeing the kid, now an adult, 10 years later. And some of them have moved, some of them haven't, including the people who were most uh, uh, furiously arguing that they were going to get away. Some people have just come back. So that was kind of a cool sense of re-examination in a way that uh, I think the filmmaker Michael Apted does in his uh, up, up series. Up series his seven, yeah. What was it? Seven up and then fourteen up and so on. I, maybe you can call this Sven up. But apart from that, it has the exact opposite problem uh, that Scenes of a Marriage had as a virtue. The first movie was a little over sixty minutes. And really, the sequel need to be 20. Because, especially at the ending, is something I found considerably unsatisfying. Like, well, I thought things would be different, but they aren't. They're kind of the same. <laughs> so. It was it was a bit frustrating. to th this, this is an hour and 45-minute film. And yeah. like we said, it touches on some of the same themes. as Basically, what you end up with is you have an expanded version of the first film, now with a consideration of isolation and death on a human level. And ultimately, the film ends with, the first film ended with me predicting that I wasn't sure if this would be here, but the island is still here, but it really hasn't changed much. Yeah. I'll come back in 1989 and we'll see what's going on then, if we're all still around. Well, he was still around in 1989, but he didn't come back uh, to make another uh, documentary. And I think that uh, exemplifies the fact that maybe there's not a lot to dig into. Yeah, here. I did laugh out loud when he says at the end of the movie, well, guess we'll be back in 10 years. We'll see what's interesting about Pharaoh in uh, 1989. No, you won't. 
Because there isn't. <laughs> Things interesting, that is. <laughs> well, now we'll find out what's interesting, or not, about <laughs> From the Life of the Marionettes, released for West German television in average married man, Peter Eggerman, has murdered a prostitute and defiled her corpse. Flashbacks and police interviews attempt to discover the psychological break that caused the crime. Man, why couldn't more events like that happen on Faroe Island? <laughs> <laughs> oh, as far, well, maybe that would have been 80, the 89 one, right? Um, this film is, is, I find, incredibly interesting in a negative way for a very, very particular reason. There's a particular kind of movie that I really enjoy to, to tell, let people know, which I call gateway movies. And it's like a movie where it's like, okay, it's not the best movie by a particular director, but it's a director that lets people ease in. On, and sometimes when you have d difficult or arty directors, a movie that's more accessible can help guide people into the world of Kurosawa or Scorsese or, or Bergman, for that matter. But this is absolutely the exact opposite. This is an anti-gateway movie because Life of the Marionettes is every negative stereotype you can have about an Ingmar Bergman movie, and it's that movie! <laughs> At the end of our last podcast, uh, we talked about a, a TV film called The Right, yes. which left uh, none of us too thrilled. And I feel that this is another film in that vein, in that it's very particularly for television, in this, in this case, uh, West German television, and it has none of the theatrical and cinematic flourishes that we've come to expect from Bergman. It also has none of the character building and acting that we've also come to expect. And it strikes me that this is all very purposeful. When we talked about what this movie is about, it sounds like it could be interesting. It's a, a deep into the mind of a murderer. And what, what causes that? That sounds interesting. Bergman seems to be going to great lengths to remove anything interesting about that subject. This is by far the dullest, most boring thing I've ever seen Bergman associate with. These characters drone on and on about nothing. Even when you they're talking about the police case, they just go off in these tangents that barely relate to the story at hand, don't enlighten in any kind of interesting psychological way, and I think it gives the game up in a scene where a character just spends five minutes talking about financial matters <laughs> in a yeah. really detailed way that perhaps an accountant or somebody working in finance 
might appreciate, but I can't imagine any general audience person appreciating it. And then I realized that when they're talking about uh, the psychology of, of the killer and the state of this man's marriage or just the police case, that it is all happening in the same tones and the same lack of anything that that the financial conversation was it, conveyed. It, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it basically removes all emotion mm -hmm. and is like a clinical exploration of these things in a way that's dressed up in this real arty sense. The film is told out of chronological order in a way that doesn't really dig too deep. And if you would have told me that the central couple in this is here played by different actors, but are the same characters as the bickering couple in the opening of scenes from a marriage. I'm not quite sure what possessed Bergman to make that leap here. It's really a series of bizarre choices, especially for a person who's been so intent on digging into his own emotions to have the emotion drain from this film as much as it is. Yeah, at this of all the films we watched for this podcast series, this was the only time I was bored. And it had some of the most sensational subject matter, which is surprising. And just to clarify, there is literally no overlap whatsoever. Their names are it. Because even though we only briefly got to, to follow this insane fighting couple and scenes from a marriage, we did get to see what their issues were. That's not the issues of this couple in this movie. They have an entirely different set of, and more boring set of issues. They're, well, they were issues of philosophy for beginner magazine. That's what, the, that's what these issues were that the characters sullenly and, uh, and with no emotion just re recite at a camera. Peter, you said earlier that one of the things you value most about Bergman is how he's honest and willing to be direct upon his feelings and uh, and the thoughts going on in his head and put those expressions in, in movie form. But there's a flip side to it. Sometimes a dude has a, a really bad day. He feels bitter, he feels hateful, and he feels like he just wants to rail against the world. Last time he manifested it, it was in a film called All These Women, one of the worst films ever made for partly that reason. And what I think is happening here is similar to what um, Gus Van Sant was doing in a film of him's called Elephant, looking at the Columbine Massacre. Elephant moves across different things around this tragedy and goes, well, what cost it? Was it video games? Was it a, a, a relationship between these two killers? Was it uh, their broken home life? And so on. And, and showing these reasons. But whereas that movie had a dispassionate view and a critical distance, Bergman, I feel, is doing that in this movie but in a bitter, sour, nasty way. Basically, this is, why do horrible things happen? Fuck if I know <laughs> the movie. That's, to your point, Brad, I think you're exactly right. And, and upon reflection, the scene where he's talking about amort amortization of some banking deal, which is absolutely intolerable when you first see it, but it's just another example of like, well, look at this guy. He's just so banal. What caused it? Same thing with the hopscotch across time. And all the flat affect of the delivery, 
All of which is worse than David Carradine in Serpent's Act. <laughs> I was oh. going to say it was David Carradine-esque. <laughs> Man, just by his gymnastics, he's more vibrant. <laughs> but the sheer disdain that I think that like Bourbon is doing towards, like, I don't know, this guy might have wanted to commit suicide. Maybe they had problems in relationships. Maybe it's some sexual thing. But beats me. Here's a psychiatrist. He doesn't know anything either. Here's a long-winded discussion of a guy literally looking in a mirror, and I'm just looking at the mirror I can't find any answers and uh, who who fucking knows so much like um, uh, all these women uh, when you get by the ineptness you get to this really unpleasant sense of like he had a really bad day and he worked it out on us now I really don't know what was in Bergman's system when he made Life of the Marionettes but I am so happy he got that out of his system because the next film that he made and TV series that he made was Fanny Alec and Alexander, released in of a prominent and eccentric theater family through the eyes of 10-year-old Alexander. Through festive celebrations and dark trials, with encounters natural and possibly supernatural, Alexander and his sister Fanny yearn for increased connection and understanding of their abundant and abundantly eccentric family. With Fanny and Alexander, Bergman reaches his senior years and a long career of greatness behind him. But I can only think of one other example of a film this great coming from a director this late in his career, which is Akira Kurosawa and Ron. But like that film, I have to say that I think this might be Bergman's very best. I am so overjoyed, blown away, and overcome every time I see this film, specifically the television version. The miniseries version, we'll, we'll talk about the differences, but for the version that I think shows Bergman reaching the height of everything he's achieved throughout his career, that's the film I would recommend. And looking at this movie and series again, I'm just floored in a very strange way because... It's such a different kind of movie that I was expecting now that I've seen 40 more Bergman movies. 
Fanny and Alexander was like the third or fourth Bergman movie I had ever seen. And that was coming from films like Persona. So when I first saw Fanny and Alexander, I was really blown away in a similar feeling that you had. Obviously, Persona, Winter Light, they can be so dark and so hard for people to go, oh, I'm going to sit down and watch this movie. And Fanny is so much more accessible, enjoyable, entertaining, spirit enlightening, and what have you, that I thought, maybe this is a gateway movie. But now looking at it, it's like, this is uh, Bergman's Desert Island disc. <laughs> it's a very particular thing There's be- for me, because you know how they say, well, if you could only have one CD or one movie on your Desert Island, I wouldn't say this is the best Bergman movie. There's a whole bunch of things where I think it's lacking of one what Bergman has shown to be his strengths. But if you could only have one movie of Bergman and never see any other Bergman film, this has got to be the movie. Because it is so enjoyable and rewarding in and of itself. You can just get so much out of this movie by itself. This is an all-timer for me. This would be amongst my all-time favorite films. And I, I think I've said I loved a lot of Bergman films along the way, but I think watching this again just reminded me that this might be his pinnacle. There's just so much in this film that touches on all the things that make him uh, special for me. We mentioned during Autumn Sonata that he was still willing to take a scalpel to his own psyche. And here he, he is looking back at his own life in a very autobiographical way, but then reaching a stage of what I think uh, Werner Herzog would call emotional truth. This isn't true to the actual events in his life, but it absolutely feels like you know what he experienced as a child. There's no nostalgia here. There's honesty and there's acknowledgement of both good and bad and honoring those around you that make all that worthwhile. The very beginning demonstrates just how much of, Al, you put it as a desert islandist, just how much it encapsulates everything that Bergman wants to tell us. Because we see uh, young Alexander, who has a very vivid imagination in the living room of his uh, mansion home, and uh, we, we see a statue of a nude woman, and the statue moves. We immediately then, and this happens only in the television version, we immediately then move into a figure of the Grim Reaper. Sex and death. That is Bergman's obsessions. That is where he has been taking us throughout. It's a simplification, of course. But he does that in the first couple minutes of this film. What he then does is explores everything. He explores the theater, which is his love. And we very much, Alexander is Ingmar Bergman. I I believe that is absolutely how we're supposed to read this character, that he is living a version of Ingmar Bergman's childhood. And we see all the bits come together of what made this boy into the man he became. Yeah, I agree with you guys that Fanny and Alexander is a pure blast of truthful emotional feeling from across the decades as to what the young Ingmar 
looks at life, looks at family, uh, looks at what religion means to him, looks at what, looks at what history me- meant to him, and looks at this very porous border between um, history, truth, facts, and magic. And how you're trying to make sense of the world and the things that, the things, some things can make sense, but the same things that can be inexplicable can also be glorious. The warm, sentimental embrace of all the contradictions and um, things that won't fit in the world and things you can't fit, but the, the appreciation on a, on, a, on a massive scale through space and time. That's what this movie does. And you said the word magic, and I think that is one of the elements that raises this to another level and separates it from a lot of other, not just Bergman films, but kind of autobiographical coming-of-age films, of which a lot of great directors have has offered. But his willingness to turn this into a fable to make this into a ghost story. There are scenes where it turns into a horror movie. There are scenes that are mysterious and inexplicable, except they make sense coming from the eyes of a child. But he's not even married to that because he has supernatural and magical things happen in scenes where the children aren't there. It's baked into the DNA of this film that magic exists, and that opens up the film to all kinds of possibilities that traditional autobiography would not allow. It's so good at putting it on a tone on both sides of the endpoints of a person's life. My favorite character is the matriarch of this family. <laughs> She is a wonderfully great anchor point. And it's notable, uh, I think, that she is the one person to share with Alexander the ability to see the ghosts. And I find that the matriarch is such a great anchor because there's a lot of crazy behavior going on (laughs) among these characters. And, And that's so necessary for this film. The film wouldn't work like it does if Gunn Walgren didn't embody this calm in the middle of the storm agree and this moral center because it's going to be the story of how important family is so the very first episodes of and i'm going to speak of this in in terms of the mini series because i think just like in scenes from a marriage the episodic structure fits the greatness of this film much better than the theatrical version, which is also excellent. We see in the very first episode, basically the family just being a family, things that would be cut from a standard Hollywood film, the celebration of the Christmas holiday, how every one of the relatives interact. Uh, We have these uh, three sons of the matriarch, which have very distinct personalities. The oldest runs the theater and is married to Alexander's mother. The middle one hates his wife and hates his life and just is a bore and 
bitter about everything about his circumstance. Mm -hmm. And then the third brother is this party on Lothario who uh, goes for everything that moves. And then kind of what's amusing about uh, his story is that his wife is really cool with it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Those three characters are... The light side to Cries and Whispers is Triumvirate's dark side. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel that like they're the very they're the very sentimental and heartfelt look at three different parts of Bergman's personality: the creative side, the artistic side, and the side that most represents in Fanny and Alexander the willingness to embrace things in all of its contradictions and and awares of people's self difficulties. Right. So the first episode gives us this true definition of family in a very complete way. And then the second episode gives us another family, gives us the theater troupe, which, while run by uh, The Sun, is directed by my favorite Bergman actor, who who we have not seen lately because he's getting a bit on in years, but Gunnar Bjornstram kind of makes a, a final bow here as the theater director, and we see an extended bit of a performance of uh, Twelfth Night where he sings a famous song by Shakespeare. And it's just so touching to see how this theater group makes as much a surrogate family as the real family is, and how fascinated uh, Alexander is to be part of both of these families. Uh, and one thing I love about this film or miniseries is, is its production design. Mm-hmm. And I think in particular, Brad, the, what you're talking about with the, the extended family Christmas celebration, there's so much going on just in every frame of this that it really felt like what Christmas feels like when you're a child. Like it's just so big and there's so much and there's just always something else your eye is going to that you're warmly enveloped in all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And you really feel that both through the first two scene uh, episodes, but especially during the Christmas celebration, which brought me back to my own childhood more than any other depiction of the holiday I've seen. And it's because that Bergman knows that feeling and is honoring that feeling rather than setting up tension or drama between the various participants or the various family members, which I think is what you'd see in a lot of other films. Mm-hmm. It's the greatest family intro of all time. Like what you said on economy. The way it's able to jump across, what, 20 to 25 different characters, each of which is in a different phase of this particular uh, uh, Christmas celebration ritual, which I think goes through like four or five phases Mm -hmm. in and of itself. (laughs) You get uh, these great sketches out of every, every major character and can pick up on sort of their essence almost right away. Like just from that first section alone, I'm rather surprised there's not a, like a Swedish downtown Abbey that does not have like 13 seasons of the Actals. <laughs> I know I would love I would, to see I would watch every one of those. Uh, yeah. The dynamic between <laughs> the brothers alone is great. But then you add how like all their wives are uh, react to their the particular foibles that they have is amazing as well. And then and when the kids go to bed, that's still not the end of Christmas time. That's what they still end of the celebration. You get to watch the pictures, the, the shadows play up on the on the wall as the babysitting maid just to sneak sneak some stuff in for you. And we can describe what happens in the film and the performances and the themes of the film, but it's very hard to describe the delicacy of the direction. There's a perfection 
to the way this film is directed. There are just scenes that have emotional value for reasons that are purely just the joy of the edit, the joy of the cut, the joy of the framing. There's a scene where after a theater performance, Alexander stands on an empty stage and uh, climbs up to this uh, light that's hanging from the ceiling and just kind of playfully moves it. And so it goes back and forth and back mm-hmm. and forth. The, it, it in no way advances the plot, theme, story, or anything but it's a beautiful moment. And this film is full of an overabundance of riches of beautiful moments. Delicate is exactly the right word, Brad. Like that is exactly acknowledgement of a fragile beauty that this film has. That said, it doesn't shy away from the ugly side either. You mentioned that the film deals with the Bergman touchstone, usual touchstones of, of death and religion. And here, the death of Alexander's father propels them into a situation where he is, uh, his mother marries a bishop who is very cruel and very demeaning of all those around him. And it very much mirrors Bergman's life in relationship to his own father, but it still acknowledges the magic that allows them to escape that situation. What's amazing about the range of this film is I, we've, we've talked about the first couple episodes and setting up the, the, this lovely environment. Then when, when it's time to move into the Bishop's house, everything physically changes. It becomes an expressionist prison. There are scenes of Fanny and Alexander just uh, sitting in this barred window area of their bedroom Everything is sparse. There's nothing in this gray place. It's evocative of a nightmare the way that earlier scenes are evocative of a dream. And and I've got to call out this uh, performance by Jan Manzio, who just does the villain perfectly to the utmost. He can stand with Hannibal Lecter and Dracula <laughs> and any of, of the worst monsters you've seen. There's lightning when this guy enters the room. And what's so cool about his performance is it's both physical and psychological terror. Because he's not just trying to dominate uh, this family through physical force, which he is because he's always, every time he seemingly lovingly touches the kids, it's actually kind of this violent shake or this love tap that's actually a hit. But then, like, he's very interested in psychologically breaking them down. And every time he has a confrontation with anyone in the family, it becomes this Clarice Hannibal Lecter-like battle of wits. And he's going after this, uh, this child, just trying to explain to him how he will break him from the, his, to his very core. And this stuff is really effective and scary. And he also has a murderer's row of frightening supporting family members yes. behind him. Like, <laughs> it's like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That is very much like, I mean, I got, I, I was scared. Of, I, I am, <laughs> I am a 45 year old man who was 
flat out frightened of the sister in this situation. (laughs) I was like, do not let me, do not let her near me, please. Not to mention Harriet Anderson is back this time as a grotesque maid who is just as severe and nasty as you could imagine. And who betrays Alexander's confidence in just like a heartbreaking scene. Okay, we'll see. This is where looking at the film, it falls short for me in that I don't know who said this. Uh, there may be a parable. If you're in a battle of wits with a 10-year-old child, you have lost already. I think maybe Confucius said that as a child. <laughs> but it's <laughs> we're talking about a grown man <laughs> who makes it his mission in life to torture a 10-year-old. And if you're a child watching Fanny Alexander, which I would recommend, by the way, mm-hmm. because despite the fact that it has some moments of violence in it, I think it's very accessible towards younger audiences. But there was a sense when looking at this film today where I just go, okay, really? It looks like this film, by virtue of going so, doing so much justice to an older person's perspective and doing so much justice to a younger person's perspective, it leaves a hole in the middle of just giving adults any agency to the extent that they may as well be the unarticulated voices, the wah, 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 of a Charlie Brown special. This guy becomes such a monster that it doesn't fit with earlier scenes where he is a member of the community and everyone in the community is fine with him. And the idea that he would be be able to present a facade of being uh, uh, captivating towards this crowd to being even a pillar of that society to being a hideous monster as soon as his castle door is closed is something I just can't fit inside my older head. Let me try to help you with that because it's not for our older heads. It's for Alexander's head. Everything that we're seeing is basically from Alexander's point of view. So we talked earlier about the idealism about the Ectel family and everything about how wonderful the matriarch is and the brothers and all that. That is also from Alexander's point of view. If this were a realistic film, that situation would in no way be so idyllic. At the same time, yes, the evil of the bishop, the absolute villainy that's being portrayed is over the top. And it's supposed to be over the top. It's how a young child would see this situation. And so the, the so the bishop becomes not just the bishop as he is, but the bishop as Alexander sees him. And Alexander hates him. Just like we know that Bergman himself had this horrible relationship with his father, who was also a clergyman, who also represented religion to him. And so... I think it's important to let the film's point of view kind of dictate how we see these characters, because it's not unbiased. It's very much characters through the eyes of other characters. Well, and I I would say to you, I agree with everything you said, but I, I do feel like, depending upon how you as an individual feel about religion, you could very much look at the actions of various denominations as cruelty dressed up as care, right? Mm-hmm. Like many religious views, like they'll dress the, dress it up as family values, but it's really about tyranny and controlling people. That is exaggerated here uh, for the reasons you mentioned, Brad, but I don't think it's an invalid criticism of the negative aspects of religion. Of religion as a concept, perhaps, but 
this is another thing which I just had a unique perspective due to this very podcast, because for every member of the clergy that Bergman depicts as a monster, there's a, a character like Bjornstrand's character in Winter Light, mm -hmm. who is a guy who is not using the tenets of Christianity, but at the same time, he's he's just a guy, okay? The priest, for all of his evil deeds, after looking at all these other films, my perspective is, look, he's just a guy. He's just as messed up as anybody else. And does he really deserve a demise that could be right out of Death Wish 3 or Cobra? Well, in Alexander's view, yes. But yeah. to some extent, I can get into Alexander's head, but to some extent, I can't. Also, there's something where... The moment of escape feels a little weird to me because it's because Alex isn't in it. He's here and then he's somewhere else. And you never really see how he made his escape. It's instead manifested through my second favorite character, the Jewish companion of the matriarch. Let's talk about this scene because yeah. this is the scene that either makes or breaks the film. And it's the reason that the first time I saw it as a theatrical film, while I loved it, it didn't become one of my all-time favorite films. Hmm. When I saw the miniseries, I realized it was one of the greatest films ever made. And it's because of the way we lead up to that scene. A lot of the magic of the film is played down in the theatrical version, so that when this moment happens, and I'll describe the moment, Isaac, who is a dear friend of the grandmother, is, is played by Erlen Josephson, in the only performance of his that I have seen in any of these films, it actually radiates warmth. <laughs> so I was very impressed to see that. But there is a lot of warmth in this character, but there's also a lot of mystery. There's, it, there's a bit of a strange thing about how Bergman uh, sees Jewish characters. They're always outsiders. And in this case, while very sympathetic, they're basically witches. <laughs> they basically have mm. magic powers. Okay, that's a little strange, but let's go with it, because it really works great in the film that when we go to his house, he's got all these mannequins and puppets and and things that make up a another kind of theater, more of the a kind point, of theater man. we saw in, in The Magician. Mm -hmm. Another kind of family, you might say, too, an maybe. An another kind of family. But we have to establish that magic exists in this universe. And once we do, and we, we get to the scene where the children are locked in their bedroom, and Isaac, uh, under the guise of making a business deal, sneaks in to negotiate with the bishop and hides the children in a giant chest and covers them up in, in a blanket. Now, the, the bishop is on to this, so he is going to go check where the children are and accuse him of trying to steal the children and through a magic spell isaac screams and the children's form appears in the room along with their mother who the bishop has been abusing all along and he sees them and then they're able to escape with the children because of something that cannot be explained as a fantasy, as a vision, as a dream, something that has happened magically. Now, that is the moment where you're either going to buy or you're not going to buy. And I think one's overall takeaway from the film probably depends on if you buy that moment. And in the miniseries version, the way it was led into and predicted, I bought it completely. And I bought into it. I was along with it. And part of it was that the 
opening celebrations and the theater piece. And I think, by the way, it's very, very cool that it starts off with the real family and then follows up with the theater piece. Because what is the theater family but a way for people to recreate using their own creative energy to recreate a sense of communication with other human beings in the way that a family did? Because the family is the first thing a lot of people experience in their lives. And a theater, maybe in some ways, maybe a way of recreating a kind of dynamic or recreating parts of those dynamics. And through the theater, you can sense magic can be made. Mm -hmm. I think that's the point of the two episodes. I think that's what probably helps it when it's a series, is that for those extended areas, this is a place where magic can happen. And so when that happens... I was along because I not only believe in how the movie was setting up the uh, setting, but I wanted to believe it, which right. might be more important. Mm-hmm. I, I think what's great about this, too, is once the escape has been perpetrated, Fanny and Island are now hidden away at Isaac's home, which is just like in a mirror of the Christmas scene we saw earlier, just a treat for the eyes in terms of production design. And we have a sequence where a puppet version of God sneaks up on Alexander that very much plays on Bergman's views of this subject. But we have another vindictive scene that I wanted to talk about where one of, I guess it's Isaac's nephew, who is locked away in a room and Alexander's told that he's trouble. They never really specify much, but this character identified as male is very obviously played by a woman in a gender androgynous way. And it's in this scene that magic is used. Somehow this this person creates a link between what's going on in the bishop's home they've escaped and what Alexander wants to happen to the bishop. And essentially what happens is that the bishop dies in a horrible way through Alexander's magical urging essentially and it's a real interesting scene because it's not this whimsical escape but this vindictive punishment and i i love that yin and yang of the way the isaac and the characters around isaac are viewed and by making the bishop and and his group grotesques that allows us to be cool with all that because the bishop I, you you said you kind of viewed the bishop as just a guy and i i disagree with that in interpretation i think the bishop is in this movie to represent a type of evil and a type of oppression mm. more symbolically than he is supposed to be a flesh and blood character so when basically isaac's nephew forms this psychic bond with alexander that may or may not have caused this fire and and these deaths you can read it either way it kind of almost goes into pan's labyrinth uh guillermo del toro territory of when a fantasy world can turn that dark oh my god that's such a cool point you've made pan's labyrinth is a great example of the border of a child's fantasy versus horrific real life events and and i feel that that would be a really great sounding board upon that those elements going on in fanny and alexander that's such a cool framework to which to view alexander's journey on here i would add that the Twisted Family, man, if you want to look at them as the religious version of the uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Hills Have Eyes families going to church, 
then you would be a little more accommodating towards the idea of someone who is clearly a handicapped person and who is sick to catch on fire and burn to death, but not before causing even more havoc. You'd be like, woohoo! That's not the feeling that I had about it. But now, considering what we were talking about, I like the idea of what you were saying about how the family in the theater is reflective of the family in the celebration. And I look at it in this way. They're showing their own family. It's not just a single evil bishop and maybe a henchman. It's the bishop has a family as well. Right. But religion has atrophied and crippled and poisoned that family. So it's sort of Alexander's now in this phase where he's looking at like where family or organization can go wrong. And so that's that part of it. And then when he visits Isaac's shop, I think then the moment connects to what Bergman, I feel, is doing all along in Fanny Alexander. In other words, you should embrace life in all of its contradictions, in all of its messiness, and all of its potential for magic, good and ill. That's why it's such a cool choice that, for example, God shows up. Right. <laughs> it's theatrical, it's spiritual, and by the way, I seem to remember the God figure is walking among like these clothes in a way that actually evokes what... Max von Sydow was to uh, freak out Gunnar Bjornstrand in The Magician. Ah. I feel it's a very similar <laughs> shot. Well, it also is notably God as created and presented by a human. I mean, like, yeah. that mirrors kind of how he feels about it. Mm -hmm. Like, there is this other thing of which we'll loosely call magic. It's not necessarily the God that yeah. people would attribute, like, uh, the Christian God to. But I really like the fact that the what I'll call the magical murder scene isn't something that's redemptive because once that happens, Fanny and Alexandra are free to come out of hiding and they're basically their family from the beginning is reconstituted. But in that setting, Alexander begins to see the Bishop's ghost. The ghost says something like you wouldn't get away from me that easily or something like a villain would say. Mm -hmm. And I really like the idea that this exaggerated childhood emotion could yeah. create this horrific murder but then it's still going to be in there somewhere yeah yeah i really like that interpretation it's a, on a psychological level what happens is alexander gets past whatever trauma that the the bishop puts on him right but except that like the ending of the babadook the trauma never always goes away just as the ghost of his father yeah. is there to inspire and and help him along as he's growing up mm -hmm. he'll always have this uh more diabolical ghost yeah. haunting him yeah. and it's kind of like uh cries and whispers in a way that the uh environment becomes more of a landscape of the psyche than a realistic environment. Mm -hmm. So you literally have this location of the bishop's castle becoming this dividing line between complete innocence of childhood and growing up to the point where you realize that there are things you're going to face that will hurt and that will scar you for the rest of your life. I agree completely. Bergman's use of setting that he's shown throughout is wonderfully delivered here and uh it's something that i respond to really well there's certain films we talked about today where that's basically the majority of things to respond to <coughs> serpent saga <laughs> <laughs> but here it's one of many things about it and, and i like a lot of the other characters besides alexander like notably isaac which i think the most magical part is you took earl and josephson a guy who's 
continually presents a vibe of mild scumbag <laughs> at best and make him such a warm-hearted figure of pure understanding and compassion towards the mates where the matriarch can provide a sounding board for her foibles. Notably, it's interesting she can't do that with her real family. Right. Um, I love what you said, Peter, about the androgynous mystical figure because I think in that closet, that figure is meant to be sort of an example of humanity in total, outside of space, outside of time, outside of gender, in the realm of like an uncanny sense of humans' dreams and wishes. It's the way how all things, maybe that's the closest representation of a godlike entity if you were going to concentrate it. (laughs) That might be what, maybe what an advancement of the spider got, to be sure. And there's another thing that really resonated with me that comes up twice and is very much based on the idea that this is a theater family and the very important place of the arts in this story, which is that two of the characters describe the theater as a little world inside of the big world. Mm -hmm. And maybe we can't change the big world, but if theater is a little world, we can create an idealized version of that. We can make the little world into anything we choose. Something you could also apply to life and to the the life Mm -hmm. of a child and Mm -hmm. family. And to film, right? Right. I mean, and one thing we haven't mentioned is that Bergman conceived this as his quote-unquote farewell to film, to cinema. Now, we still have a few other movies to talk about, so obviously that didn't happen. But it feels like that when you're watching this movie, that he's saying everything at once in such a beautiful and generous way. And Fanny Alexander is one of those rare films that, even though his career isn't over, encompasses a great artist's entire career with love and with feeling. And there really is something about this that just envelops you with a warmth and a love. I think, Brad, you put it really perfectly. The most incredible thing about this movie and what makes it one of the top movies of all time is it makes its own little world, but makes it feel big, makes it feel like it can take in all of our world and makes us want to reach for more of all of our world. And as a cinematic achievement to do that, that's amazing. And I think another way you can say it is that's magic. Despite Bergman's claims, we do have some more films. He did a number of films for television. He wrote a number of films that ended up being directed by Liv Ullman. But there are two more films that are on the big box set. The next one being After the Rehearsal, released for Swedish television in 
Veteran theater director Henrik Volger remains on stage in an empty theater to contemplate his production. He's intruded on by his leading lady, whom he has known since she was a child, when her actress mother's life was professionally and personally intertwined with his. So this is actually a little bit of a benefit for Fanny and Alexander, because like I was saying, how the adult perspective wasn't really addressed. Well, this addresses some adult perspective, and I don't want it. <laughs> give me back to give me back to Alexander. Well, Al- Alexander's in this. Well, not the character, but the actor playing Alexander. It does make a very brief appearance yeah. in this film. <laughs> but bring more of him because this is a, an example of theatricality at its most theatrical and theater people's behavior at their most neurotic and self-flagellating. It's simply in the wrong medium. It, it's kind of like a, a magic flute situation mm. where uh, that's very particular in opera. This is so particularly a stage piece that it doesn't work as a film or even really uh, television. Maybe it would be more interesting on stage. Erlen Josephson's uh, warmth from Fanny and Alexander has, is gone. <laughs> And he is back to being a more Johan-like cynical figure. And uh, yes, there's some interesting things going on about when the young leading lady who he is working with currently gives way to his memories of her mother, the, the past leading lady, the original actress is then replaced by a child who was the child he would have remembered her as when she, when he was having the affair with her mother. That particular device in a single take, having the older character replaced by a younger actress while a dream sequence argument happens between the director character and his memory of a now deceased leading lady hit me pretty hard. Like, is that there, there's a sense that this young actress might actually be his daughter and that that came about as an, through mm-hmm. an affair. It's sort of similar to what we talked about during Autumn Sonata, where an older man or older artistic creative person is wondering what damage has that creative life caused to those around him and he's looking at Ingrid Tulin plays the uh, dream sequence character who is very much a neurotic mess an alcoholic someone who is titanically insecure he's remembering that and in the Josephson character is very much a fraud who will say something to people but not really mean it just in an effort to get rid of them this is a a consideration of what has the damage that's been done? What did I do to cause it? The film then brings us back to present day where the opportunity to have an affair with this younger actress is presented before him. And he walks her through what would happen if they were to consummate that affair and they don't go that way. And it's someone who is running through the damage he's caused, who maybe in this instance has learned something from it and made a different choice, albeit very late in their lives. It's not a film without interest. There, there are bits of ideas that I would have liked to see grow into something, but I think the theatrical format in this case somewhat limited it. And also, like, the character growth of the main character is that he sticks his head partly out of his own asshole where it has been inhabited through most of this (laughs) film. Everything that Josephson was doing to such great effect in Scenes of Marriage, in terms of direct, honest appreciation of a situation, he's turning the opposite like every word is done to undercut including himself (laughs) so while it might be truthful to a way how a guy who's spent his life in in the arts 
like is continually second and quadruple guessing himself, that does not mean it's a pleasant experience for us to go through, and it's not rewarding for being unpleasant. And the biggest thing I get out of it is like, man, you can get pretty self-involved once you get into the theatrical arts. <laughs> well, I feel like, though, both this film and the next one we're going to talk about feel like footnotes to his career in some way, but they're more about the TV setting from which they originate. Like, they don't feel cinematic. But what sticks out to me here, what I still love, is that he's still digging into his own psyche. He's still judging himself. He may have chosen a different medium to do that, which I don't find as rewarding as his prior cinematic meaning he used, but there's still things of interest here, perhaps not presented in the way we wanted, but worth seeing. I see what you mean, that he's he's giving an honest examination of like his own artistic and personal contradictions, but that only manifests itself in the personal and to me in the negative side of it. And, and for me personally, I react more on the way the visuals and cinema can represent these things, and that is one thing I think we can agree is surely lacking in this one no this is a stage play yes <laughs> but does he stage a, a bit of a comeback in his next film saraband released in television and theatrically in 2003 years after scenes from a marriage, Marianne and Johan reunite at the remote estate. They still can't escape family drama as they are drawn to Johan's toxic relationship with his son Henrik and Henrik's unhealthy codependence with his musical prodigy daughter, Karen. Some things are better in the ideal than in reality, hmm. and wanting to have a sequel to Scenes from a Marriage, wanting to see whatever happened to uh, Marianne and Johan is a... Uh, Something that I thought about after watching Scenes for a Marriage, what did happen to this crazy couple, and we get that. They're long since uh, divorced, and they haven't seen each other in all this time, and when we see them see each other again, there's kind of a, oh, that's nice, here they are back together again. Mm -hmm. And kind of like that, we might not remember just how toxic they were together, yeah. and maybe they were better off apart, but Bergman's uh, sequel is a little bit forced here. Mm -hmm. For one, he doesn't really follow any of the rules of Scenes from a Marriage, except for the chapter breaks, which he, which he does again. But uh, instead of not showing any other characters and family uh, besides the couple, here we the couple is almost a side character to uh, Johan's son and his, and his own daughter's situation, which is a certainly an interesting dramatic detour, but it's not really about Marianne and Johan, who we came to see. So it, it feels like the whole sequel aspect to this is 
a little bit shoehorned. Yeah, I t- kind of take it as it was the blurb you can put in on the, on the theater theatrical poster. I did not understand when I saw Sarah Ben that those were the characters from Scenes for a Marriage. And I think the movie got a better reception for me because of it, because I felt it was more of a relationship quadrangle between the couple and their son and their granddaughter. Because at different points of the different chapters in there, one of the people is in a a deep conversation and an interaction with one of the other people. And then, like a nasty relationship equation, the next chapter has person three talking to person two and so on. Mm -hmm. And so you get a sense of of how complex these relationships can be because the relationship a person has with his son is different than with his ex-wife and with his granddaughter and so on. I didn't mind that the story didn't focus on Marianne and Johan as much as it didn't. Because at this stage in Bergman's life, this is again going to the idea of parental guilt. I think whatever you think about Marianne and Johan, neither one of them is like parent of the year by any stretch (laughs) of the imagination. In fact, they're pretty terrible. Mm -hmm. Um, And that film is basically digging in to this here. It does have some aspects to it that feel shoehorned i agree like you have a major character introduced that is henrik who is the child from johan's first marriage a lot of the film is about his relationship with his daughter and it's basically a generational passing of trauma from one to another it's a tricky thing for me because i feel like as much as that the introduction of that character is shoehorned i feel like the the character and the performance by borhe alstead are both very good like i think he his performance carried me through a film that's centered on a pretty unlikable character in a lot of ways, a very sensitive, needy person who is willing to suck the life out of those around him as long as he gets what he needs. But at the same time, you see his relationship with Johan, who has just turned into a crotchety old fucker. I mean, he's really, (laughs) he is really awful in this film. Mm -hmm. There's a scene a couple standout scenes but that Henrik's in both of them. One is where he meets Marianne in a church and, and kind of shows his true colors. And another where he has to deal with his father who just rips into him. I mean, and just like tears him from apart. Um, that, is a, that is a great scene, I have to say, um, because it shows that Bergman's still able to, able to deliver the absolute intensity of emotional fire to it. By the way, spoiler alert, this is part of the way I looked at the movie because I didn't know, but I feel it's not Johan and it's not Marianne. I don't think the Johan from Scenes of Marriage ever could turn into, it's not just that he's a crotchety old fuck to put as, as evocatively as you did, Peter, but it's that he has such authority because that's what his character in Scenes of Marriage does not have at all. Well, he has it, no authority by yeah, the end of I that. actually have no problem believing he could become a crotchety old fuck. I think there was enough darkness in his character in Scenes from a Marriage that I was completely able to buy this term. I, I see what, no, I see what you mean. No, in terms of his demeanor, yes. In terms of being able to tell any other human being being, screw you, mm-hmm. no. He would have turned into Henrik, in my eyes. It, not uh, not the guy he turns on to. Except he was very manipulative towards his wife in the original scenes, and now we see how, with, with the authority of a father to a son, and a son who is very insecure and very weak, that he could be uh, just as manipulative. I'll echo, by the way, that that scene is magnificent. It reminded me 
a lot of uh, the confrontation scenes in Autumn Sonata yes. between mother and daughter, and it's the, the father-son version of it. And, and uh, I think for any issues I might have with the presentation of this film, Peter, I, I definitely agree with you that uh, the performances remain top-notch. Yeah, I do mention the uh, the way this film is presented. One thing that just visually didn't work for me at all is that the film opens with Liv Ullman directly addressing the camera and breaking the fourth wall. But the problem with that here is that this film is shot digitally, and you get a little bit of soap opera effect with the sets, so that when she's going to the set, which is our main set, which is Johan's house, it had a Mr. Rogers feel for me <laughs> because she has this kind of very warm, inviting the audience look yes. into her face and she's going, looking through pictures and all this. And it just, this is the only time I'll say this. It looked, it didn't look good. And <laughs> I was surprised. And it just seemed like maybe that that was something that would have worked on TV, but this film did get a theatrical release and maybe in that mm -hmm. medium, didn't work quite the lighting as well. in particular mm -hmm. is, is quite generic compared to his uh Bergman's earlier cinematic efforts not as bad as like 70s Quinn Martin pop shows but there it leaves a lot to be desired of expressing things through light and darkness I want to just quickly jump back to um Josephson again he's mildly scummy in a lot of his films but in that argument scene he brings the darkness and in the other moment of great dark self-examination is his speech in Cries and Whispers, where he says, everything that's charming about you hides something nasty underneath. <laughs> Just, and at least in that case, he still brings that. And like a yin and yang, Liv Ullman brings the compassion and empathy that she is so able to embody into this role. And she is very much kind of more of a Yoda figure here and, uh, <laughs> and attempting to make better this complete mess of a family that she uh, she has entered into. That's right. That's uh, This is something where I think it's it's less of a Marianne thing and more of a Liv Ullman. Mm -hmm. Liv Ullman, like, we've praised her expressiveness, especially on her face, over and over again. We can't say it enough. And here, like, I feel the floodgates are totally open in a way that actually echoes Isaac from Fanny Alexander for me. She's so accommodating, and even to the sense that she doesn't feel... It doesn't understand why she pays him a visit until uh, you find out until later in the movie. But she wants to go with it. She wants to go with this sensation and see where things play out. That feeling is, uh, I believe, very nicely delivered by Liv Allman and really nicely delivered by the uh, the young lady playing Karen. Yes. Yeah, there are things to admire about this film, too, in that we've set up this situation where the main conflict is whether the young daughter Karen will leave her father's clutches or not. Their relationship is pretty grotesque. Yeah. He's you basically using her as a surrogate for his deceased wife. And um, Marianne, Liv Ullman's character, basically tells her to get out of there. She doesn't do it in exactly the way that Liv suggests, but she does a way, make a choice to go and get on, be on her own in her own way. And once that happens, we're told that the Henrik character has attempted suicide, but has failed and is in critical care. So that's where the film leaves us. It doesn't tell us if she comes back to yeah. care for her father and is brought back in and that one last mm -hmm. manipulative gesture of mm -hmm. trying to bring the daughter back to him. That part is left open-ended, but in a tremendous gesture, I thought, we follow the Marianne character to visit her own daughter, who yeah. we've revealed has been uh, handicapped. And one of, in just a great 
one scene performance, Gunnel Fred plays the disabled daughter, Martha, and you have a two-person scene where uh, Liv Ullman puts her hand up to Martha's face, and just for a moment, like the eyes open and the recognition mm-hmm. flickers, and there's the last line is, I, I, I've touched my daughter. Mm-hmm. And that's the last thing. Yeah, that's the and last. That, it's a beautiful note it, to and, end and, on. And so, goddamn man, you're so and so wonderfully. First, it just occurs to me right now. Think of the idea of grasping in the context of when we first saw Liv Ullman with a hand reaching for a face in persona. Look, look at it in those score. Yeah, it's it's wonderful that. At the very end, Bergman's last scene as a director would give us that grace note. I love to use the phrase grace note because it's such a graceful ending. And Mm. as much as one scene could touch on the things that made a director special, that scene might actually do it. Yep, yep, yep. A great sentiment and the perfect vessel to which to express that sentiment. And on that grace note... (laughs) Or possible grace not. <laughs> we at the Directors Club, uh, Brad and Al, would like to conclude our broadcast day and looking at the films on Ingmar Bergman. Peter, thank you so much for joining us on this ridiculously epic journey through <laughs> the world of, of Ingmar. It's it been, was great. It's been an absolute pleasure, guys. Uh, thank you for letting me be a part of it. It's been a blast, and uh, I appreciate it. And we also want to give thanks and credit towards some resources that we found really helpful when we were trying on this endeavor. Two that I found rewarding were two books, one of which is by a film historian and critic Peter Cowie called Ingmar Bergman, A Critical Biography. And another book was written by one Ingmar Bergman called Images, My Life in Film. And those of you that are fans of the Criterion Collection will probably have noticed that they came out with a massive box set featuring almost all of Ingmar Bergman's works, as well as commentaries and documentaries and extras. And that was also a wonderful resource, uh, Criterion's Film School in a Box. It's an absolutely amazing resource, blemished only slightly to me by the fact that it does not feature face-to-face, and does feature both Pharaoh documentaries. (laughs) (laughs) We also want to give a little extra attention to something that we discovered when the Directors Club started on this endeavor of the Bergman 101, was that we were not the first people to come up with this idea in internet terms. There was a YouTube channel called Breaking Down Bergman, hosted by David Friend and Sonia Strimban, who through each episode that they post went through film by film also dealing with a little more of Bergman's television work and the occasional Bergman related topic. We made it a point once we discovered this that we would not listen to any of these episodes until we had watched the films ourselves and formulated what our thoughts would be about them. But we found that when we did watch the essays afterwards that they were rewarding insightful, and uh, provided an interesting and different perspective than what we had been saying on this podcast. So we recommend that if you want to take a more comprehensive look on the works of Ingmar Bergman, after you've listened to our podcast multiple times, we highly recommend you pay a visit on YouTube for the channel of Breaking Down Bergman. 
We really appreciate you listening to our discussion on Ingmar Bergman, and we have an announcement to make. This is going to be the final episode of the Directors Club that Al and myself are going to host. We've been doing this for three years, and it has been a wonderful experience. We've learned so much, and we very much appreciate your listening and having the chance about all these directors, all these wonderful films, and share our love of movies with you. It's been a blast going through hundreds and hundreds of hours of great cinema, the vast majority of which that even I, as a, I, considering myself an enthusiast, I would have not experienced had it not been for the incredible concept of the Director's Club, a great idea that was fomented by Jim Lachkowski, the founder of the Now Playing Network and the original co-host of this Director's Club podcast. I, myself, I have to say, I'm eternally grateful to Jim and his co-host founder, Patrick Erpohl, for coming up with the idea of the Director's Club, setting it in motion, and to think that me and you, Brad, were suitable enough to join in an endeavor that meant a lot to him was, in turn, means a lot for myself and, uh, I assume, you as well. Absolutely. We are very grateful for this opportunity. And speaking of Jim and Patrick, just because we are not going to be doing the Director's Club anymore does not mean there won't be a Director's Club. Because Jim and Patrick are coming back with the original Director's Club team. They'll be uh, starting their first show in February with a look at Anthony Mann. And in addition to thanking Jim and Patrick, I want to add a little extra note for one Colin Suter, who um, is also has a show on the Now Playing Network, and notably provided some really great assistance for ourselves in terms of some recommendations, and not only the kind of uh, discussions we would have, but in also the tools we would have to try to make this podcast sound as good as we could make it. So thanks a lot, Colin. Yes, Colin has been a great supporter of what we're doing here, and it's very much appreciated. Also, I want to thank Rebecca Martin and Jeff Brightman from Fresh Perspective, who also have always gone out of their way to support us. And on that note, we leave you in good hands. Thank you for listening. Thank you for loving movies. And I just want to add a personal thing about thank you, Brad. It was a great journey. Couldn't have done it without you. Thank you for inviting me along on this journey. Lost obsession and 